Clubhouse. I owe you all an apology. I have been coming here for the wrong reasons. You told me there were five stages of grief. Uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. What I didn't realize is that my grieving is out of order. And that confused me. That is very astute, Gina. You're absolutely right. We all take a different path to acceptance. Well, that's what I've learned. I'm not seeking acceptance. That's not where I want to end up. You were trying to help me navigate past anger. But anger is where I want to live. Anger is where I flourish. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after-show podcast for Showtime series, Your Honor. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode two of season two, titled Part 12. I think I'm just going to start saying we're just discussing Part 12. They're really consistent yeah. with the numbering. It's not like, I think people can follow that. It's not like, you know, yeah. how Gina got her groove back, which is, I think, a great alternate for the uh, title for this episode. <laughs> Uh, or got, how Gina got her parentheses evil, close parentheses, groove back. But anywho, uh, tonight's episode was written by Danny Vettiri and once again was directed by Peter Solit. Peter, you'll remember, directed last week's episode, and he will be back again to direct parts 15 and 16 later on in the season. This is Danny's first writing credit on Your Honor. I was very happy to find Danny was actually a writer on Phineas and Ferb for many episodes. Uh, for It looks like a lot of that show. And I was a big Phineas and Ferb guy. They just announced 40 new episodes, actually, of Phineas and Ferb. So I'm okay. extremely excited for two new seasons, 20 episodes each of Phineas and Ferb to be coming out. Good old Perry the Platypus. A uh, different demo than the Your Honor demo, but, uh, <laughs> but still good. But still good. <laughs> Just a community note. Please join us over on Facebook in Showtime Your Honor TV series fan group to discuss all things Your Honor with all the other fans. There's so much good conversation going on over there, picking out all the small details and reminding us of what was going on in season one. Highly recommend. Uh, just a reminder, we assume you have watched this episode, and so we're definitely going to be spoiling things. So if you don't want to be spoiled and you haven't watched the episode, pause, go watch, then come back and talk to us. But we're also not going to be recapping things step by step. We end up recapping a lot of the episode, but we talk about it in terms of characters and themes and things like that. So it's not going to be scene one, interior, Michael cries. It's not going to be anything like that. So. <laughs> uh, Caroline, this was a big episode because this, of among many things, confirmed one this baby is a Fia Adam pro, uh, production. And it yeah. also confirms that one year has passed by. Two good calls from last week uh, that turned out to be proved right this week. Little baby Rocco Adam. Aww. Hey, baby Rocco Adam. I guess I guess too much <laughs> to think it would be called Desiato. I guess uh, being it's Rocco like Adam. R.A. Baxter. Yes. R.A. Baxter. <laughs> exactly. I mean, pretty much mind blown, though, on that, right? I mean, when she says Rocco Adam, I mean, I hope your brain went a little bit like 
I mean, even though we knew it, it still it still feels like, wow, wow. Yeah, getting that confirmation is is kind of mind blowing because of the things that we talked about last week, because it was such an aspect of their relationship that we never got to see. And I mean, their on screen relationship was very very early young love kind of stuff awkward moments together smiles you know sh- co- i mean commiserating really bonding over dead moms and dead brothers like it, they had very early relationship kind of vibes so to learn that they actually progressed off screen to that extent makes the whole thing kind of mind blowing they weren't afraid to go to showing like bedroom scenes and stuff like that because in season one we had Franny and Adam. I mean, do you remember that totally nude hunter scene where you had like his whole butt and everything like that going mm-hmm. on? Yep. So, I mean, they weren't afraid to like go into that, you know, direction. So if they wanted to show us their relationship going that way, they could. Do you think this is retconning a little? Do you think this is that that couple really didn't get intimate during season one, but in order to have season two and to have this extra, you know, huge motivation for Michael. They just went ahead and said, nah, let's just say this relationship did go there and she did get pregnant. A thousand percent. Right, Con City. A thousand percent because it's what gives the tension, right? What does Michael have to live for? Saving Charlie's butt is not enough. I mean, look at him stare at that belt noose in this episode. Look at the scar Mm. on his wrist, which indicates that he tried to slice his wrist at some point, like physically tried to kill himself. Yeah, it was pretty shocking. And, And I think it was very intentional. I mean, the camera... I mean, unless someone like dropped the camera, there was no reason for it to pan (laughs) to his wrist like it did, except to show that scar together with. And when he like pulls that belt tight, Mm -hmm. it's it's a shocking moment. It makes you guess. It makes you jump back because it's a sudden motion. But these are things he's thinking about. Charlie saving Charlie as much as their friends. Adam was his sole reason to live without Adam. Maybe Charlie is enough to keep him right now, but this baby is going to be the kind of thing that gives him a reason to hope. So they needed some significant level of tension and and reason to be, reason to tray, to sustain a whole season. So I think I think it's 100% retconned, which I'm fine with. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any issues with it. And we did point out how the show had a habit in season one of showing of significant things happening off camera. It's a totally valid in line with how the show has handled things before. This episode had, I think, a pretty significant theme. I was a little shocked, actually, how often it was stated. This idea of being good, this idea of what is a good person, what is good people, where do good people belong? I mean, I, I think this kind of relates to last week and the show as a whole, the idea of atoning for your sins and karma and making things right for your mistakes and your 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 egregious mistakes. But it was very specifically attuned to the idea of goodness this week. You hear Michael talk about it. Charlie's talking about it. Fia, Eugene, all of almost all of these main characters are talking about goodness and what does it mean to be good and where do good people belong and where do good people go throughout this episode. It was it was actually a really nice unifying theme, I thought, in the episode. Very much. And I mean, of course, we, we've had like derivations of that throughout season one because, you know, we have like the whole concept of your honor, right? We've been discussing sort of morality, ethics, you know, what, how far can you go for someone you love and still be considered good or honorable? Is it okay? Do the ends justify the means? All that stuff, I think, is wrapped up in what is a good person. Michael had a great episode here insofar as reconnecting, maybe not in great ways with everyone, but at least seeing 
a lot of our characters in this episode. So I think it makes sense to kind of let, let's track through Michael's progression in this episode via the different people that he runs into contact with. I, I felt a little sad for him staring at the old house. There's a new family living in there a year later. Have You've moved in different places, obviously, in your life. Have you ever yeah. gone back to the old house and thought, how weird it is that someone else is living there now. I kind of, I, I commiserated with him a little bit on this. Completely. And in fact, the first year that um, we had moved, we actually went back to our old house and like trick-or-treated. And we we were friendly with the people who bought the house. And so we were like, hi, you know, like really expecting them to be like, oh, you guys. And they were like, hello. And we were like, trick-or-treat, we got our candy. And then we kind of walked away like, I don't think we should come back here. <laughs> That seems like that seems like like we were done here. Like it, it was definitely over. And so it was that feeling of like like I was wanting to like look over their shoulder and be like, what'd you put in the living room? Like when the door was open, you know, because you're so curious. But it is so weird to see someone else living in your life, if you will. You know, you're you're just observing from the outside and it feels kind of hinky, right? Like a little like, ew, like someone's wearing my clothes and sitting at my table and eating my breakfast in my house, you know? It's very much like someone's wearing your clothes and, and going through your things. And, and in Michael's case, it's even more so because of all of the traumatic things that happened in the last moments of living in that house. And think of all the different body parts that Jingo coughed up or threw up or <laughs> ate. The, or, body parts uh, the bloody rags up. that he dragged <sighs> through. I mean, the amount of times they're having dinner and Django barks and then he has to go over and deal with something. I'm like thinking like, put that dog outside when you have people over. Yeah. Yeah, he's going <laughs> to blow up your spot. How many times do you need him to cough up some offal? You know, or, <laughs> exactly. or, or drag out his his favorite bloody rag to play with. Right. For Nancy to go, is that blood? <laughs> and I'd be like, Nancy, you craze. No, it's some ketchup. What, where's your brain? Right. Let me give a speech here to distract y'all from from the <laughs> right. bloody rag that our pooch just uh, dragged oh out my here. God, exactly. I, I, you know, I didn't have a good memory of Django in my head when I saw the dog at Senator Grandma's. I think that's Django. Is that that's the I think the the idea is that that's supposed to be Django. I thought he looked much healthier, which made me think maybe they actually got a new puppy <laughs> to to play him. He looked healthier and younger and fitter than he ever looked when Adam <laughs> and well, he did. He looked pretty <laughs> whole like, and good healthy. For you Django, <laughs> maybe Senator Grandma has like a way more strict no like brains. exercise plan, right? Yeah. And like he she barely ever feeds him internal organs, right? You know yeah. all that kind of good stuff. It's I can imagine that living with uh, the two men that Django probably was eating a lot of leftover pizza and stuff. And I bet Senator Grandma buys premium dog food. Well, I'm sure Senator Grandma never forgets to give him his seizure medication. Oh, Gee, I, I mean, never. as soon as Adam got with Thea, like Django was like a, a forgotten distant memory. I mean, I was rewatching season one and when he finds him, when Michael finds Django laying and convulsing in the upstairs bedroom and there's like the little puddle of like throw up and seizure juice um and, and he carries them out and then that nosy neighbor comes across the street talking about people being around the house and he's trying to get the pup inside the trunk and takes a i was devastated for Django. thank god he's with senator grandma these were not responsible dog owners <laughs> <laughs> that was my takeaway listen their attention was split at the time <laughs> they didn't have as much time to just caress Django. although if you listen to michael you know him and Django wrestle all the time 
I don't want to complain about things too much incessantly. So I'm going <laughs> to. You wouldn't want from, to be insufferable. I don't want to be insufferable with my cursing no. and my complaining. <laughs> uh, anywho, uh, let's talk about Senator Grandma. What, what's your impression of her reception here? I, I found her to treat him very much like a guest and very respectful from um, Mrs. Manners kind of way. But I thought she uh, cold to him, maybe not quite like family, much more like a guest than family. Yeah, the word that comes to mind is is reserved. Like I felt like she was 100% fulfilling her obligations as a family member, but she was not going to be, you know, like emotional and gushy with him or anything. She's a pretty matter of fact lady as is. She definitely seems like the type of person who comes in, does her job, gets gets things done, you know, and moves on. So she doesn't seem like overly emotional or, or, or anybody who was going to like start ranting at him or anything like that. I appreciated all of the restraint that she showed. And I think that, that the coldness also comes from a, like a realistic feeling of unfamiliarity. Like this man who's coming into your house is not the man who married your daughter. Not only has so many things happened, but I mean, just physically looking at him and his demeanor, like he's not the smart, witty, you know, conversationalist judge that he once was. So you would have some, I think, very healthy boundaries you'd want to put up where you're like, you know, I, I'm I'm here for you on some level, but on another level level like I'm obviously wary of you. And I think that's super realistic to how you would feel. I, I think you're nail on the head with saying I think it's very much she's acting very much out of duty, uh familial duty in the strictest sense versus any kind of emotional connection to him. And which makes sense also because as far as she knows and how everything went down, Michael is as proximately responsible for Adam being dead as anyone think if you think about the circumstances of adam's death and and what everyone knows or doesn't know michael was responsible i, I mean i i think that's a very it's a very easy way to look at it is that she is blaming him to to say nothing of the fact that her last interaction with adam before adam is dead is talking about is revealing to adam his mother's affair which i'm sure is transferring itself into some level of guilt on her own way and shame i'm sure when we discussed shame in the, in the previous episode and i think that that is definitely you know weighing over everybody because this is you know the level of embarrassment for her politically i'm sure to have her son-in-law be in this entire mess and she she came in on the scene for us in season 1 as someone who was scrutinizing maybe quietly, but still very much scrutinizing how Robin's death had been handled and her subsequent memory was being handled. So she not only has what Michael did concerning the trial and Adam and everything, but of course, I mean, she's coming in with this huge ripped open heart of of Robin. What happened with Robin? Uh, Michael's lack of urgency to figure that one out, I think, is always going to be a huge wedge between the two of them. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, remember just how she reacted to them not having like like memorialized Robin right the day of the thing. Remember, she she catches Adam yeah. in a lie that they went to see Robin's tomb or gravesite uh, on her anniversary, but she knows that's a lie because she actually went there and there were no there were no flowers, there was no pictures, of all these things that Adam was spinning that they had left there. Adam was carrying out the lie that Michael had told him to do right that muscle memory, but she's one of those 
these people and like Nancy then comes along also and realizes that they in fact were not there on October 9th. Right. And and not so not only is it the lie, but I think she's 100% carrying on her heart like why wasn't there flowers and and notes and you know like a picture or whatever like she she was like double hurt. She was hurt by the lie and hurt by the facts that Adam hadn't been there and putting stuff on the grave. I always wondered and this is a total tangent from just about the last season. Why didn't Adam say the truth that in fact he did honor his mother's once he was exposed for the lie he should have been like well i actually did but i went to yaya's and i put a picture there and flowers there that's where i chose to memorialize her and he could have easily been like oh i got my locations mixed up or something that's what put this whole thing into motion was that he had gone to yaya's in the lower ninth to put flowers and a picture of her there that's one of those uggs about like you know when we go back to say like michael made some missteps he you know he had a plan about how he wanted things to go in terms of remaking that day and you're right it would have been a lot smarter to add in some actual facts you know things that really did happen which he tried to do i mean that was the whole thing with the with the the vet and stuff he they just lucked out with some bad luck that the vet would would associate October 10th was such a strong memory from his war days. The, the dying, but uh, it was a solid plan. Otherwise reconstructing the, the, uh, the conversation with the waitress and the diner about going to the lower ninth to see the railroad house, which is what he had actually done the day before. Like the, the thought was actually really solid. He lucked out with some bad, with some bad coincidences. The vet. Uh, a, a senator grandma actually going and being able to tell that they were lying that they actually didn't go there so you know it, it's, it's uh, one of those things that best laid uh plants of mice and men often go astray if man if i was if i had been michael and see i would have doubled down i'd have been like god i can't believe someone would have stolen stuff off of her grave I like that thought. i had to, that would have been my first that was exactly my first thought would be like it's fucking city like what you do know? you mean it was probably my that flowers army weren't there yeah like, yeah he probably went and and took my flowers back after i purchased them from him and laid them on the grave he probably went over there and snatched them back up because i was such an asshole to him i smarted yeah. out at him so he probably did it just to get back yeah you gotta double down on that one but right. it's all right it's all, all right, right well, michael what's done is done we got to move forward here. He should have consulted us, I think. On his <laughs> so. She does reveal a little bit of hurt when she says, I'm surprised you're here after a year of radio silence. And there's our year confirmation, right? Is that a little bit of hurt? And do you believe Michael when he says it was really for her benefit that I didn't want to be a burden anymore? Or was he really just protecting his own feelings and shame? No, I, I think he's like totally inward. I think I think there's that he isn't considering anyone else's feelings in this he just is like better off not existing so i didn't contact her or respond to anybody given how senator grandma felt about michael and adam not remembering robin last season uh, at you know on the anniversary of her death were you surprised at her poo-pooing on him going to the cemetery every day? That's a recurring theme of this episode is he visits the cemetery basically every morning and, and has a whole relationship with the headstone that now has Robin's name, which we had last year, but now also has Adam's name, sadly, right below it. And he gets closer and closer to it. He touches it at one point. Like he's having a whole thing with the headstone in this episode every morning she shits on that and she says they're not there going there is not going to bring you any closer to them she has this whole speech about her plant which is going to bloom once a year and then then she's going to go and drop it there kind of thing i thought it was a little at odds with with her feeling from the one year anniversary react from season one 
And I also have kind of an issue with like, who is anyone to tell anyone else how to grieve? That part felt very off. Like she's she's living a different life than he is. He's been in prison. He's he's dealing with all these emotions and she can't possibly understand the level of responsibility he feels for. We don't know about Robin's death because, again, that's the mystery of it all. But Adam, of course, we know all that he went through. I thought it was I thought it was too heavy handed for her to sort of give such grief to him about like, you know, you shouldn't be going or like what like what i mean if right, you like want to ask questions right. yeah if you want to ask questions like what do you get out of going all the time or or even gently say you know i found that over time it didn't help me to go all the time and so i kind of dialed it back and now i found it helps me to just go once in a while or whatever you know, she could relate like that. But I thought she was being a little bit too judgy about what he needed, especially given the fact that, like, he probably wasn't able to attend Adam's funeral. No, I'm sure he didn't have a Baxter Mm-mm. style arm twisting to Mm-mm. allow him to attend. the. And remember, Adam dies. He, they go to the hospital with the body and he's arrested that night. They literally had no time to process Adam's death with with Adam there. It's very reasonable that he would want to go. And, and even kind of the way he is kind of like creeping up on it, like how it takes him some effort to get to feel comfortable coming closer and closer you Which know it's a great detail in the episode i, I really yeah. liked how they portrayed it yeah I, I really feel like all of that is is realistic and um and and you know what maybe the senator grandma's out there all of us would say i i'm trying to help in my own way she's just she's done like sugarcoating stuff with michael you know she's just gonna say it as it is which is her personality anyway but also like she's not gonna coddle him like this is what's going on and i think that the, that pantry moment actually really like lends itself to like that i'm not i am not going to like bend to your whatever you think you've become i had a whole moment of sympathy for him about the the suffocation of the larger room i felt it for him i think the the cinematography the camera blocking and and just i think brian cranston's acting in this scene you could feel that room closing in on him because it was too big that he needed that narrowness of the pantry the way he spies it from the first moment when he walks in i found it totally believable and yeah i think you're right i think she is she's going the very no nonsense route like i'm going to tell you how it is you're you're grieving wrong you're (laughs) you're sleeping wrong he even says i'm gonna find somewhere else to sleep like what is he gonna go in the bathtub like he's just gonna go try different places in her hidey hole house but you know what i was having total flashbacks to Remember Castaway with Tom Hanks Mm -hmm. and he's like sleeping, um, you know, on the island for so long. And when he comes back and they put him in a hotel room, he can't sleep in the bed and he sleeps on the floor. And because he says the bed's too soft, he can't like he can't even have those things because there's like this PTSD of it all. And I mean, you can imagine, I mean, when you're scared about safety, which even though he's out of prison, he has to still feel like he needs to look over his shoulder. I think he does. I think he really, I think in this episode shows us. But when you think about it like that, then wouldn't you want to sleep in like a pantry? <laughs> well, know? yeah. Where there's only one door in and one door out and you have these like, everything's very, you know, controlled and confined and in a positive way for you. You can control your environment better. 
Yeah, I think it's a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome, you know, this idea of being incarcerated for the year and only sleeping in such a small room. That's what he knows now, you know, kind of kind of like a feral animal in a lot of ways. You know, if you give my cat a giant, you know, room, she's going to go find the smallest, darkest, tightest spot to go hide in and, you right. know, stick her head out. It's where she feels safe. And I think it's the same thing with him is he needs to feel like he's back in his cell because that's what he knows and that's what feels comfortable to him right now. Uh, yeah, it made me feel a little bad and, and her lack of compassion, which I again, I totally understand. I'm not ripping on her. I get where she's coming from. But Michael is the kind of protagonist for good or for bad. And I was I found myself being sympathetic to his play here, especially with the grieving, especially when you think about how he says so perfectly to feel later in the episode. We all lost Adam in our own ways. It would have been too perfect for him to turn around to Senator Grandma and say that same line to her, maybe even get him slapped or evicted. <laughs> but that's all I was thinking about on the rewatch, you know, after, you know, we watched this episode again. But I certainly have women like this, though, in my family who would feel like you don't want to indulge behavior that you think is not healthy. And so instead of being like compassionate and asking questions and being like, well, what's going on? There's a there is a like a whole line of thinking of like, you just have to you just have to crack down on this kind of stuff right away and say, like, we're not going to go down that road. You're not going to start sleeping in my pantry. You're not going to start, you know, doing this or that or going to the sitting at the graveyard every day or whatever. Like there is a whole line of thinking that the way you get someone healthy is to like hold the line and make such strict boundaries that like they have no choice but to sort of end up on the on this path however we all know that leads to like tons of just feeling bad and ashamed about how you're grieving and that you know it doesn't work overall but we certainly know people like this in our lives you know who'd be like we're we're not going down that path you're not going to cry over him or you're not going to whatever and bury it down you know, bury it deep yeah yeah Charlie tells us you can't bury things so deep. It has a way of washing it back up to the surface. I thought it was interesting that Robin, I didn't really focus on this in season one, even though we saw Robin's headstone a couple of times. She's buried in the Guthrie plot or, or, you know, mausoleum tomb section of that cemetery. And now Adam is buried with her. Guthrie is Senator Grandma's family. She, she's Senator Guthrie. It made me think it was interesting, at least as far as Adam goes, does Michael and Michael's family not have the same kind of roots here that he wouldn't be buried with? I can't see Michael at some point when he's dead being buried. I can't think Senator Grandma is going to have Michael buried in there, but maybe, but maybe, but it, it seems very much like Michael has been taken. A, there's been a uh, like a divider put between Robin and Adam on one side and Michael on the other, like mm. that they won't rest in eternity with each other. I can I can see that very much. Also, though, there I mean, we had an entire season with them, and besides Senator Grandma, we weren't given any other family members, so it's a little hard to know. I know it's been brought up in the Facebook group, and I know it was brought up a lot in season one. I believe we talked about it in the podcast. Michael doesn't have any type of Louisiana accent, so there isn't any reason to think he is from there. To that end, I would think his family is you know all elsewhere. But but there is something right. He met Robin when they were at NYU, right? I mean, so there's a new york connection there if not if he's not supposed to otherwise be from and there's definitely though like like a going back to our retcon slash like view about about who he is and his past and stuff so the fact that they would be in guthrie you know in that plot is like it kind of it kind of 
erases Michael. Yeah, like, yeah, it doesn't I, associate right. them with him. I, that was my take on it, was that with Michael going off to jail, being arrested the night Adam dies or is murdered, it makes the most amount of sense for Senator Grandma to uh, to do Michael Desiato erasure. In a lot of ways, I'm surprised that it even says Adam Desiato on there and Robin Desiato, and it doesn't say Robin Guthrie, you know, and Adam Guthrie. Tiled last name erasure is a thing that exists in this world, and I'm surprised Senator Grandma didn't even take that step to do that. Let's get to Charlie, because... I- Charlie, I, really interesting. Uh, he only had one significant uh, scene with Michael in this episode, but I thought it was important. I thought it was important for these two, which are one of the bedrock relationships of the show. We have to start at the beginning, though. We get to see that nice big billboard, Mayor Figaro, the people's city. So we've got our confirmation. Charlie did, in fact, win the mayorship. We assumed from last week that he would, but we have our confirmation this episode a year later. He is, in fact, the mayor now of Nolens. He needed to be elevated into this spot to be able to pull a lot more strings. And I'm curious if he's going to be a guy that Michael can count on long term here and friendship will like win the day or, you know, if there is going to be some like betrayal back and forth. Yeah, let's listen to this clip. This is a large chunk of their overall clip when they're sitting out back behind uh and cut meat company. You didn't belong in prison, but I know you. I know you protected me. You, you, you may still be exposed. You need to watch yourself. There are only three people who knew about my role in that. Rudy's never gonna talk. And the other two people are sitting right here. So I got nothing to worry about. Losing Adam was my penance, too. I paid for my sins. I loved that boy like he was my own. You can't dig graves deep enough in this city to hide them from the storms. Water will get to the bodies every time. Only sure thing about the dirt beneath our feet is that it'll wash away one day. You asked me to bury something, and now... Here we are. Shame on us for not knowing our city better. It was a car. Not a body. It was a coffin. With a set of headlights. Powerful clip. Uh, Charlie, I think everything he says always has such a weight to it. It makes you always kind of lean forward and and take in what he's saying because I always think there's a there's at least a nugget of wisdom, if not like a whole a whole ton of wisdom in everything he's saying. Yeah, we got to start at the beginning here. He doesn't know about Michael's confession. Listening to that, I'm I'm grabbing my own collar, going, "Ooh," you know. He doesn't know that Michael, in his looped out state. It implicated him in this. He thinks it's Rudy, him, and Charlie are the only ones that know, so my secret is super safe. It has to come out, right? And how does it yeah. affect him? What's your best guess? I mean, let's let's assume it's TV. The worst possible thing is always going to happen. What happens when he finds out finds out that Michael did implicate him? I, this is what I'm talking about, about like when, you know, is will friendship win the day or will it be like, no, you went too far and and you just can't come back from, from what happened here? I don't know. I I, I, I want to hope that somehow the two of them will be able to overcome it. But I, I don't the way that they have been so clear about making Michael lose everything. 
I think that he's going to lose Charlie and it makes me sad, but that's, but, but they are really committing to having this very realistic. People aren't going to forgive you along the way. You assume because you have history with them, like Lee, like Nancy, even Senator Grandma, but like not, you know, people aren't going to just ignore what you've done. Right. Karma comes around. And mm-hmm. and even even with the best karma, if you if you spend it all, eventually you run out and, and things come back around to you. I, you know, it's interesting listening to Charlie in that clip, how much he actually blames himself for how much it all went down. I, well, I think it's interesting. He says, I know you protected me, which so he has he has an idea of of what happened in the trial, whether he actually got to be there or just has a feeling of whatever Michael went to prison for that the world knows. We we know why Michael went to prison, but again, this question from last week of because the transcripts were sealed, there is a question out there that we don't really have a clear answer yet on what does the world think Michael went to prison for or what the specifics of that were. Obviously, he doesn't know about the confession, and he's carrying around a lot of guilt that if he had done a better job of, quote unquote, burying the car, Robin's car. And, you know, remember, this all starts because Kofi gets arrested running the red light while driving the, quote unquote, stolen car. If he had done a better job of 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 getting that done and off the board, does any of this happen? Is Adam still alive? So mm-hmm. maybe this guilt that Charlie is carrying around on Michael's behalf maybe acts as a buffer for if and when this confession comes out and that he did implicate Charlie and put his whole career and life in jeopardy. I, I don't I don't know if it's enough to to, you know, offset the the hurt and the wrongs. I was curious, and this goes to our good people episode theme and atoning for sins. My takeaway from his statement is losing Adam was penance for the sins I've done. He seems to think that he's pretty much square with God and whatever powers of beam above might be. Is it that easy? Is it that easy insofar as that one act that he didn't actually have anything to do with is cleansing the, the slate? I don't know if it works like that. I think you have to actually have to do good. I don't think it's like I did bad and I and there were consequences. So therefore, I'm good. I don't think you can do something like Charlie did and then feel like, OK, so I lost Adam. So then now those are natural consequences of this situation. So now I'm back to neutral. I think you actually have to if you think of it like a teeter totter or something, you actually have to do more good on the other side in order to balance it, not just simply face the natural consequences of the bad thing you did. I don't think that's enough. And so, you know, whether it be looking out for Michael from here on out or whether it be looking out for Senator Grandma or whatever, whatever equals the dedicating his entire mayorship to Adam, whatever that is supposed to equal, those acts might balance you back, but not simply just having a consequence to your bad actions. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, then yes, I, it does. And I think that's right. I, I, you know, maybe Charlie is talking in the whole here and he, maybe he's talking on a larger scale of how he said that he was going to dedicate his mayorship to the memory of Adam and, and try and right wrongs that way. I mean, we see him help Big Mo in this episode, presumably in his year in office so far, he has, he has really tried to make it the people's city. Charlie definitely seems like that kind of guy. I mean, he definitely seems like he's willing to help 
help himself, but I think he's also very much dedicated to helping others. Think back to, you know, how he's trying to, he fights Rudy, the corrupt cop in season one to keep the basketball hoops up. You know, Rudy wants them taken down because they cause congregation of bad elements, you know, and then Charlie has a problem with that. He's like, no, you gotta leave the hoops up. And so, you know, Charlie definitely helps others along with helping himself. And so maybe in that larger scheme of dedicating to Adam, his mayorship to Adam's memory, that's what is really atoned for his sins. I think it's too e- too easy otherwise, like you said, the consequence of, of a bad action isn't enough to right the scales. Mm-mm, mm-mm. As far as tension and plot goes for season two, what happens between Charlie and Michael when inevitably the shit hits the fan is is one of the big question marks I really have up on my board. I, I think it's the most compelling thing besides the Fia Michael baby aspect. Do you think he will will Charlie hear the recording or do you think someone will tell him that the recording exists? Well, <laughs> I think he's going to hear a recording. Let, let's let's skip to another interaction Michael has in this episode, because I think ultimately whatever happens bad to Michael is going to come as a result of this interaction. Amazing. Now, if there's no more lies, you've got nothing left to say. I devoted so much to your family. I know you were trying to protect Adam, but God damn it, Michael, you should have trusted me. Instead, you just lied, manipulated and used me. You may be free now, that's not gonna last forever. When your guardian angel vanishes, I'm gonna be the next thing you see. Where is Olivia, the federal prosecutor, has a vested interest in Michael's in keeping Michael clean for all intents and purposes. That that clip from Nancy, she very much has a vested interest in blowing his shit up, ruining his relationships, destroying bridges so that she very much feels like the scales haven't been balanced yet and that Michael one year in prison hasn't done nearly enough to right his wrongs. And I think if if Michael's relationships with Charlie, with Senator Grandma, with Fia, with anyone get blown up, I think it's going to be at the hands of Nancy based on that clip. I agree with you. I mean, and plus, she's the one that knows. She's got the recordings, right? She's got them on her phone, right? That we're listening she's got to it her. in her brain. <laughs> you know, like she knows what was said. Yeah, no, she is definitely a huge liability for Michael. A huge one. And, and, you know, some people, a year goes by, maybe the pain lessens, maybe you're, you choose to move on, you know, live and let live, and I can't live my life waiting for revenge. Nancy has only been fueled by the year that he's away, and the fact that he is out now offends her. You can tell it in her words. It offends her that he is out walking around. An important moment from season one was Nancy realizing that... Michael had kept the affair from her, that that bit of information could have helped break the case with uh, with uh, Robin's murder. I feel like there was something about that exact moment, that exact slight that she perceived from him that 
created the deep seated hate for Michael because there it's not just what happened with Adam, but there's that or even the time spent on the case. But it's that like she felt impeded from being able to solve the case because Michael withheld that information. And there was something about that that just it it, like from like a professional point of view. and, and, And then I guess from whatever amount of friendship they ever had, which I don't really know how much friendship they ever had. Was she was so 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 betrayed? I, I think she's just going to see that until Robin's murder is solved, and then there might be a shot that Michael could like come back more to neutral for her. Maybe I I don't know because he, he, even in the, <laughs> even in that clip that we would play where she says, "I know you were trying to you know protect Adam, but God damn it, you know." So she's acknowledging the one thing that he has in his arsenal of defense. She's acknowledging it and still dismissing it. I, I know you're trying to protect him. Doesn't matter. It, it, the which for some other people may be a significant defense for Michael to have. Like everything I did is justified because I was trying to protect my son. I, I certainly would make that argument. I, I I don't know the limits to which I would go to protect Tom. They're very high. I, I imagine I would do some very horrible things to protect him and keep him safe. Nancy doesn't give a shit about any of that. She's saying I acknowledge that that's your reasoning doesn't matter to me the lies and the manipulations the obstruction the amount of time invested in blood sweat and tears into solving robin's murder and being a friend to you and then the lies and manipulation all of that far outweigh what you did for the reasons you did i would even say on a professional level there is this you know unspoken agreement between you know like judges and police officers and all that stuff for there to be some level of like we were talking about like you know not just being good but having honor she trusted him even if she didn't know him as a human being but just being a judge that he would be honest and 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 honorable with her tell all the information so there's they have so many layers of betrayal if you will professional personal you know go down the list she is in the right to be absolutely done with him just done in the same way like, that why senior would grandma you... is i mean again i yeah. I, I want to be very clear but for anyone listening like i don't we're neither of us are defending what michael did or or justifying it everyone has the right to be as angry at him as they are it's just an interesting arc for her to still be i mean she's literally lying in wait she says i will be there when your guardian angel vanishes which is also interesting because the implicit threat there is i know you're getting a deal i know you're working with the federal prosecutor like all of that 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 implies she can really fuck him in a million different ways if and when she so chooses, depending on how angry she is or or offended and need and needs to take him out of the knees, she knows all of these things. The the reference to your guardian angel and when she will vanish at some point, very pointed threat. Michael should t- take very very seriously. I, yeah, so I think if Charlie finds out, I think it's going to be because of of Nancy. That confession makes its way out. That's my that's my get that that's my gut instinct. Listening to the vitriol in her voice, it's just kind of dripping there. The person who has a vested interest in Michael confession not coming out, Olivia Rosie Perez back again this episode. She continues just to kill it. I'm just loving all of her scenes. What's your uh, impression on old Olivia in this episode? I think she continued what she started in in episode one, where we were like, this is excellent. I feel like this woman like really knows exactly what she wants here. And she's just, she just seems like she's been here a thousand times and she knows exactly like what a person in the position that Michael's in is going to do. And she anticipates his moves, anticipates, you know, the things he's going to say. And she's just, she meets him like toe to toe every time. 
the fact that she had the forethought to ban him from city hall to put him on the I list no what oh a, my god what, what a demonstration that she knows exactly who this guy is exactly what his behaviors are and exactly what he's going to do that's a great that's a baller move that she did it was and I, and man to take it down to that personal level too of not only him not being able to make it into the courthouse but then actually have alan the her, his bailiff from his courtroom mm-hmm. have to be the one that's like the final face he sees and how cold alan is how much he's like just shaking his head like you know get out of here we you have no friends here there's a scene in Anchorman, and obviously that's a that's oh, a comedy. Oh, I'm all about Anchorman. Where Brick, the uh, Steve Carell character, this is after Ron Burgundy has been torn from the group because of his outburst on air, and uh, Brick sees him, and he's he's like, "Ron, Ron, I want to talk to you." And then the other guys, the other sports guys, like have to pull him away because he can't talk to Ron Burgundy anymore. But he really wants to. That was Alan and and Michael in this episode for me. Alan looks so sad that he couldn't talk to to the judge. He really generally likes him. I think I, that was my 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 interpretation of that was I'd really like to talk to you. I I cannot. You are so toxic. I can't. And Michael wanting a favor. And Michael's looking at Alan for like appeal to help him, not out of genuine affection, which is a commentary, I think, on Michael. And mm-hmm. and, and, and maybe he actually <laughs> hasn't changed really at all because he's definitely that was my impression was he was definitely looking to Alan kind of like a wink and a nod, like you can do something here. Get me in. And Alan's like, I can't. I really can't kind of thing. You work from home now, but as like coworkers who would have been worked together so so closely for so long and Alan's role in that courtroom of literally protecting the judge protecting like you know the people in that courtroom there's something about that 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 it goes beyond just like we knew each other once it's like I had your back it's just it's a different level of trust and loyalty that comes with that that when that gets broken it it's just it's like that much more ugly you know it's it's not just like oh i knew you once it's like i knew you once and i would have protected you with my life literally alan would have jumped in front of a bullet if let's say jimmy pulls out a gun during the carlo trial exactly without hesitation alan's jumping in front of that bullet to protect him this is where they are now you know it's <laughs> it's offensive every what michael did offended so many people on so many levels you destroyed you destroyed something good and pure and whole that's how nancy sees it that's how Alan is being forced to see it. Certainly how Senator Grandma sees it to an extent. Charlie, because he's such a loyal friend, doesn't see it that way yet, but he hears that confession. Maybe he feels that same way too. Michael destroyed everything. He burned it all down. If you go back to like the tagline of season one, how far would you go to protect your child? Michael is paying that question in in spades. He's being asked that question. Was it worth it? How much did he risk to protect his son? Because he's lost everything including his son in the in the end he lost everything that's why the second season is so intriguing to me because so many stories end with the and he lost everything and that's all that that last sentence has to say but then the story's done so the fact that they picked up and he lost everything as like the top of the page for season two and now we're going to go from there i feel like it's really rare that stories actually delve into the, like the next day you know or the next year and like what's the fallout of everything beyond the the night of the ballroom uh, yeah i mean it, it lost everything and now you're going to see the consequences 
consequences of that. And then, yeah, where does he go from here? Can can he atone? Because now we're actually into the actual question that Charlie thinks has already been answered. Can he atone for his sins? I mean, Lee says to him at the end of season one, when she confronts him and she finally learns it was Adam who killed uh, Rocco, she says, this is your last chance. She's talking about not throwing the trial, getting Carlo convicted. She says, this is the last chance to atone for your sins. It's the last chance to save your soul. And ultimately he makes a choice and Lee storms out of the courtroom. So this is really now Michael's chance to atone as much as possible after he's lost everything, can you still fix it? I don't know. I think that's what season two is going to try and answer. Yeah. And I don't know if, if it's going to be like a true fixing it or if it's going to be like a, can you create a life after, you know, like, like some things are going to remain broken. Friendships may never, ever, ever mend. Um, and more friendships may break as we move forward here, like with Charlie. But can you even carve out any space to even exist? I want to play the Olivia clip in the car because there's a there's a moment at the end that I need to talk to you about because I'm not sure what it means. Let's play this. So what was your plan? Just walk into the mayor's office and warn your buddy that he might be in trouble? <laughs> Come on, Michael. Do you honestly think that I'd let you do that? I can't even allow you to enter the building. If you warn Charlie or anyone else, if you so much as whisper the words federal investigation to yourself in the middle of a thunderstorm, the deal's off. That means you are back in prison. That means your friend Charlie is right behind you. I, I can't do this. I'm, I'm, I'm not refusing. I am telling you. I, I don't have the ability. I know. Then why are you doing this to me? It's that question. She acknowledges, I know you can't do it. And then she kind of laughs. And he says, well, she, I know you can't do it. She, he says, why are you doing this to me? And then she kind of just like chuckles. The scene goes on. She gives him the clothes. She tells him about the job. It's part of work release. But for me, the scene ended really there. Why is she doing it? If she, if she doesn't really think he can do it, why is she putting him through it? it seems like a lot so is the question that she's she's just bluffing here like she she has an idea of how this will work whether or not he wants to participate his his being out is maybe enough to set the ball in motion so i'm gonna go two ways i'm gonna say on one hand i think that you could take the comment as like i know you think you can't do it but i know better you know, like sort of like when he said, I'm not going to agree to anything. And she went, we'll see. Surely she's been in other situations like this where she's going to have someone who just feels like they it just goes against every fiber of their being, whatever she's asking them to do. And they say, I can't do it. But ultimately she gets, you know, she gets them to do it. So part of it feels a little bit like, yeah, everybody says that. Everybody says, I can't possibly do this, but they end up doing it. Or the flip is, like you said, she has a plan that that needs he she needs his warm body out in the world. But he maybe doesn't have to participate at this higher level that she knows he isn't capable of. So I, I, you could go either path for me and I would be I would believe it. 
I think we have to keep in, in mind here, she needs him. So she needs to put him through this because of the her and federal investigation. She's obviously done the math that Michael Desiato represents the best option of however many options exist to get to Jimmy Baxter and the Baxter family in a significant way to bring them down from the inside or to bring them down, whether from the inside or otherwise. I think all the blustering against it, if you even whisper federal investigation out loud to yourself, to, to like himself. Charlie's going to fucking <laughs> prison kind of thing, that that has to be a level of bluff there because she needs Michael to participate. She wouldn't be going through this if if it was that black and white, right? There, there, well, it would certainly be easier on her investigation if he went along. Right, right. So she, he's got leeway here. He may not realize he has some leeway here to push. My guess is he does. He may just not realize because I think she's doing a really good job of selling the power dynamic as it actually is. My gut is that he probably actually has some rebellion leeway here. I, I mean, it's it, this is this might be like duh duh, but like, do you think Olivia one hundred percent knows about Rocco Adam, or doesn't know? Does Olivia know? I my guess is she doesn't, but I don't know why I think that because she's so on the ball. She's so on the ball otherwise. My gut says she doesn't know about him either. But then I fact check myself and say, but that doesn't make sense. She would do her due diligence. Surely someone's seen Fia walking around pregnant for the last X amount of months. And so then, you know, obviously they have these people under surveillance. Surely she knows, but maybe she doesn't know whose baby it is or whatever, but there would have been a birth certificate. There was, you know, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you get the vibe that she doesn't know. Right. But but all gut instinct being what it is, I'm not trusting my gut instinct here. My my, <laughs> my, my rational brain says Olivia has to know because a baby born into the Baxter family when her whole life is being devoted to investigating the Baxter family. You think, yes, it would have right. to be. Known. And the fact that there's not a baby daddy around here begs the question of, well, who's the father? There's no father around here. So you're going to go do your you're going to go do your digging. And maybe that's the other reason why she gives the answer she gives about like yeah i know you can't do it because he doesn't know yeah. right and she knows once he knows he'll fall in line that is a very good point and makes a lot of sense and olivia is playing that kind of long game in this episode because we see it when he gets to where he gets to the job so he ends up working at and cut meat company seemingly kind of a random thing there's nothing in michael's past that would seem like he would be a fit to work in a meat cutting plant but <laughs> but but then we have this clip this is when the owner takes them and they leave the front of the place where maybe eyes are watching and they go in the back room we have this conversation you remember me judge no I was in your courtroom, drug possession. Prosecutor charged me with intent to distribute. Jury gave me 14 years. You reduced that sentence to eight months. You said good people don't belong in prison. Follow me. See, I think that's a good indicator of karma right there. Where, like, he gave this guy a break and now this guy is going to be kinder to him you know, on the other side, he does. If we remember, remember, do you have look around corner eyes? He does have a lot of karma stacked up of looking out for people who have been, you know, uh, accused of things. Yeah. Two things from that clip. It, it's a very quick clip, but I think it provides two really good pieces of information. One, you're 100% right. Michael still has some good karma from his time as your honor, right? That he did actually do a lot of good before Rocco. Baxter came tumbling into Adam's life. 
Michael, the reason he had the reputation he did, the reason he was able to draw so heavily on his karma with Nancy, with Lee, with the court system, with Sarah, his boss, who he framed for drunk driving to get her off of the case. He's able to do all those things because he had so much bank karma. You have to imagine he's pretty much on fumes with that. But here is a great example of it still drawing out of that bank of good karma. Michael doesn't see himself maybe as your honor anymore. This guy does, though. This owner of this meat company does. And it's paying off in him being able to get a job. And obviously, Olivia knows that. This is part, this is what we're saying. This is why mm-hmm. Olivia has to know things like the Fia baby connection, because this is not a coincidence. She didn't bring Michael here, like flipping through her phone to places he could work. She knows exactly that Michael helped this guy out. This is how we start kind of rebuilding Michael up. Also interesting in the scene is that she says, I suggest that you give him a job that gets him out in the world. Why? I mean, but, well, I mean that it's rhetorical. I mean that we. I think we know the answer <laughs> why in this question. But you have to be thinking to yourself: Why does she want him to be a meat driver? You know, because she's, <laughs> well, she she's, wanna... she's playing. She's playing chess, right? Because right. So obviously, there. You know, he's going to be needing to be. You know, her eyes out in the world and making these these trips inside the Baxter Hotel. Um, and how can you clandestine get in there? You know, the plan is. For from Michael to get back to Jimmy Baxter and the Baxter family, she needs them to run into each other. So what better than the place where Michael helped the owner say, help save his life from a longer drug conviction, 14 years. I think that clip said that's a, that's a yeah. tremendous, but to eight months, wonderfully the East at the end cut meat company has an account at the Baxter house. So make him a driver. He's going to be going there constantly. That's why he's here. That's why she wants him to be a driver. She's playing all of this. She's manipulating all of this beautifully because she needs him. I originally had in my notes, this is such a risk for Michael to be going to the Baxter house constantly. Like, this is a huge risk for him to be taking. No, it's not. Well, it is for Michael, but it's exactly what Olivia wants. She needs Jimmy to see him walking around. When That couldn't have worked out better when Michael walks into, runs into Fia and Jimmy Jimmy gets to see half of their conversation on a balcony. That's exactly the kind of shit that Olivia wants. And some wants. hugging, I think, or oh, something. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, this is just a great example. Olivia is playing like 4D chess here, and everyone else is just playing checkers. I loved it. I loved how everything unfolded here because she's not having to spell it out. She's doing things like, we'll see, or chuckling when he's asking, why are you making me do this if you know I can't do it? She's not revealing any of her cards, but the way the story is unfolding... The most blatant thing she said so far was when she admitted being to one as being the one who I can't even let you in the building. Like that's the most that's the most blatant thing she said. Everything else is just you watch the story unfold and you just see Olivia just pulling strings. The best part of this of the season so far for me is how they're unfolding Olivia's character versus all of the things that are happening as relates to Michael. It's also calculated. I love it. I love watching it. <laughs> well, it's fun when you feel like you have someone who has this this plan that's that's such the long game that you feel like you can play along as the audience. Like if you pick up little clues along the way, you know, like when he couldn't get in the courtroom, did you automatically think Olivia? And if you didn't, then now the show is trying to teach you how to watch. Right. So now when you see, see things happen, you should think, I bet Olivia had something to do with this. Another part of that clip with the owner that just because of episode themes wise, this is another, this is another good people 
clip, right? This is good people don't belong in prison. This is Michael saying to someone else back when he was a respectable your honor, good people don't belong in prison. So now you have to take that mirror and look it back on Michael. Is Michael a good person? I don't know that there's a black and white answer to that. And Nancy, I think if you asked her, would definitely say no. But I'm not willing to, to wholly discount what he did to protect his son. I don't know that everything that he did makes him a bad person. I, 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 that's me. That's, that's me who, as a dad, doesn't know the limits of what I would do. I'm not ready to say Michael is a bad person. I think maybe there is still a good person there. If you're to take uh, Eugene's new mom, Aunt Sheila, you know, the idea of the good seed, if the good seed was ever inside you, we're going to play that clip later, but if the good seed was ever inside you, it's always inside you. You can remove the bad, you can excise the bad, but if you were a good seed inside you, that's always there. That's how I view Michael. I, no matter what he's done, the, the level of wrong, which is tremendous, I think there is a good person in there somewhere. Because I think he did too much good back in the day to say he was never a good person. I'm always going to be more curious about him, given the complete lack of information we have about his relationship with Robin. That relationship is such a void for me. I don't know Michael's heart as as well as I would like to because I've only seen him as a dad and I saw what he was willing to do. But I would like to see some amount of information, be given some amount of information about what was he like as a partner, as a spouse, because that tells you so very much. And we have such lack of information after spending so many hours with him. It actually, you know, it gives me pause about, you know, what what is his personal heart like exactly? I feel like that's even where Nancy's hate comes from, you know, is like if, if you had more love for your spouse, you would act in a different way. Or if, if you just, if your relationship was a little different, and I, th I think that flows nicely into our conversation we're going to get into about Gina and Jimmy and like those subtle things between people who are married that to tell you everything. They don't have to tell you words. You just see these little emotions and you're like, oh, I, I see what's happening here. Just continuing your thought, the things that we do know about Michael as relates to Robin and his role as a partner. Yeah, sure. We don't know a lot, but the things we do know, I would say are troubling with him as a committed partner. He seems very blasé. He seems very checked out when he talks about Robin. Maybe because of the affair, it, maybe it hardened his heart to a lot of things. Maybe it deadened a lot. Every time he would talk about Robin, it was much more, he tried to frame it much more insofar as keeping his memory alive, uh, keeping her memory alive uh, for Adam's sake. He would he would say things like, I loved your mother. I, I very much loved your mother. But that's easy to say, right? That's lip service in the moment. And we know he's a good liar. When he says things like that, I'm not it's not easy just to be like, well, he says he loved her. He must have loved her. L look at the body language when he talks about Robin. He was very flat. His affectation yeah. was very flat when he, when he talks missing. about Robin. Yes. There's something missing that doesn't give me enough meat of their relationship. An affair maybe accounts for that, but there is so many blanks there. So you get what I mean, though, of like, if like, because I don't, because I don't know that relationship and that's such a, a um, foundational relationship to how he's like in the rest of his life, you know, there's plenty of people who are very good at their job and horrible people. And so he could be a great judge and really look out for people and seem very compassionate. But also that's just part of his job. But if he came home and, you know, he and Robin were a mess 
there's something more there that I'm like, man, I just wish we could pick through that a little bit more. And maybe we'll get that. I hope we do get more about Robin because for God's sake, she's the least developed, least understood character I feel like we have. And she's important because she is the motivation for Nancy. She is the motivation in theory for a lot of what these characters have done. So it's like, I gotta know, like you can't just leave that unanswered. It's a real Rosetta Stone for a lot of things that we don't have. And most of the answer most of the questions we don't have answers for that circle around michael and his family if we could talk to robin for 20 minutes we'd know everything <laughs> we'd know everything right because because yeah. we just don't we're missing that part of the translation for sure Let, let's get into maybe the one person other than charlie who is happy to see michael out and about in the world let's talk about michael and Sophia. we all lost adam in our own way Sometimes I think the things I miss the most are the things I didn't get to experience. There are so many conversations we never had, questions I never asked him. What would you ask him if, if you could? It's kind of fucked up to say, but uh, I would ask him, what do you think happens to us when we die? Did he believe in heaven and hell and... All the things my mother is obsessed with that I never bought into. Just, I, I keep thinking, you know, what if I'm wrong? You would have liked having those conversations with Adam. He, he enjoyed asking questions. What do you think about all that stuff? I don't know about God and, and all that. But I, I do think that good people go where they deserve. And she hugs him right there. That's a, just a visually, when he says that, she can't even control herself. She throws her arms around him and hugs him tight. Another mention of good people. Another mention of him having an opinion on where good people go and asking this question. And she asking this question of where do good people go? Good, good people go to heaven. Such a resounding theme that just is running through this. And maybe because Michael is at the center of so many of the times it comes up, though it does come up with Eugene, it very much is making you think this is, we're examining Michael's soul. We're examining very much in a, an existential way, is Michael a good person? If you've lost everything and you're now dealing with the consequences and the fallout, part of that equation is, is he a good person? But maybe without the Robin aspect, like you said, we don't we can never actually answer that. But at least we're getting right. his opinions on it. We're we're circling the question, if nothing else. I was thinking about Fia's response to him and and talking about good people go where they deserve and and how she she grabs him so passionately. How lonely Fia must be because she can't share her grief with anyone. She there's no one. I mean, she can't go cry on Jimmy's shoulder about Adam being dead. You know, like she literally has no one to try to commiserate with, at least for Michael, as as small as it can be. Other people knew, say, Robin or Charlie can can pat him on the back about Adam. And there's other people who actually know more and understand more and there's like sort of like a like a weird emotional little like space for him to be able to be sad people get he's sad fia has to like continue to live her life despite the fact that she had this huge loss and obviously now this baby and all this stuff i mean she's just 
walking in like got to be like this weird, just isolated like tunnel, you know, where like no one can really touch her emotionally. The fact that she decided to move over to the hotel and live there was like, okay, like I I see how like you can't even be around the rest of your family. Why is Michael so much more interested in being talkative to her here versus when they saw each other? presumably months ago in the prison he could have easily pushed past her and actually after she hugs him she she of course then she's like maybe we can talk again and he kind of runs away from her he does the michael runs away from her thing but up until that point he's engaging her what kind of questions would you have asked him what would you like to know he's a thousand times more engaged with her here in a real way is it because he also is craving some connection this is a person who is seemingly not only wanting to be with him in the same way Charlie is, but actually seeking him out for comfort. And they do share the loss of Adam. Yes, they lost Adam in their own way, but they both lost Adam in a very personal way. Thoughts on why he's more talkative here? I'm going to say because she is so alone and she is so isolated. She's picking that up, you think? Just reasonably. I mean, he's a smart guy. Mm. I mean, everything I just said about how Fia doesn't have anyone else to go to, he must have that and you know he must know that who could possibly be consoling Fia so I think that he does soften and he does absorb her pain and that's something that he was always good at as a judge right he was always good at listening to someone's story and finding you know the compassion in the situation so it's almost like he was he was more in his judgeship role right that second, you know, because he was speaking with those like wise words about good people go where they deserve. So like, doesn't that all sound very from the bench kind of things that you would say, as opposed to like at home, Michael? Well, it felt very much like though how he would talk to Adam though. So yeah, I I think he would talk to Adam the same way, even in his explosive moments. When I think back to season one, when uh, Adam is needling at Michael and he's like, you know what tomorrow is? Yeah, it's Saturday. No, it's also the day they're burying Morocco. What am I supposed to do? Just pretend like it doesn't happen. Like just pretend like nothing happened. Just pretend, you know, and move on. Like he's not being buried. And he explodes like, yes, fucking yes. (laughs) You're fucking pretending. Like even then he's still being fatherly in his advice. And it's very much the same kind of attitude he adopts here versus when he is talking to a Lee or a Nancy or even a Charlie where he is, I don't want to say smarming, but he's in like manipulating mode here. He's very much empathy and taking it in and, and, and giving wisdom versus trying to get, he's not trying to get anything from Fia here, I guess is my point. That's kind of where I put him as like when he was just a judge prior to everything happening with Adam, like he's just here to listen and try to give some sort of like wise moment to this person. But it's a little bit more like devoid of like emotion, personal emotion in a way, which sounds odd because they're talking about Adam and everything, but there's something about it where he kind of slips into another version of himself. It's interesting because he can do this. You know, he can slip into a more professional version of him or a more like I just got out of prison version of him, which is like all dilapidated version, you know? Yeah, I mean, he does opine, though. He says Adam would have liked those convers that those questions. He would have liked your questions. He would have he would have enjoyed having those conversations. He liked asking those questions. That's him pulling back the veil on his relationship with Adam, because I think there is a large aspect of this of let's let let me indulge Fia in her feelings, because that way I can keep the wall up on my own feelings right this whole we lost adam in our own way so i'll go over to your sandbox and we can talk about how you lost adam but pulling that back and and giving her the nugget of he would have enjoyed those conversations he's doing her a kindness that he doesn't need to do her at all even if he was just in listening mode 
he didn't need to say that he would have enjoyed those conversations. You know, I'm saying he's he's giving something here. There's something about Fia, whether he is aware of it or not, that he's picking up. And there is a sincerity between these two that I don't think he has with anyone else, save maybe Charlie. His old judgeship seemed to be revolving around at-risk youth and like having to try to put himself in their shoes and and try to kind of figure out like how to not have people's lives ruined there's a lot of that in this conversation however he had to do it whether it's whether it's by commiserating whether it's by sharing facts whether it's about you know whatever giving a little of himself he it felt very much like trying to keep fia in a good place I don't think he fully appreciates the idea of Olivia is setting him up to be at the Baxter house often. I think from from Michael's point of view, being at the Baxter house is probably still a real risk and danger to himself. And by the way, I think it is a real risk and danger to himself. I think Olivia is very much gambling with his life by making it so that he's going to be interacting here. When he shows up later at the night, this very end of the episode, he meets the baby and she says, you know, you know, meet Rocco Adam Baxter. He's your grandson. Before that, he's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Michael is being drawn back here to this this young woman, this partner of his dead son. He doesn't know why, but yet he's still here. There's a bond here even before the grandson is introduced. Something is pulling Michael to Fia that he doesn't even really fully understand. I think that's actually really interesting writing. And I think it's an interesting character development. It's not just him, you know, going to the Jones house and, and doing the extra mile to to get a lying cop, you know, off their back. There's something else pulling him to Fia that he showed up to this hotel. He didn't know he was going to meet his grandson. He's not working actively for Olivia at this point, but yet he showed up and doesn't even know why, right? It's it's people will come, Ray, in Field of Dreams. They, they won't yeah, know why. They're going to get in their cars. They're going to drive here. They're not going to know why. Something is going to pull them here. That's him going to the Baxter house to see Fia again. We got to throw out the concept of like shared trauma. I mean, you know, that's that's a huge part of this and something that like, you know, uh, the cemetery veteran talked about, you know, the idea of like, I'll never forget, you know, and, and having these shared trauma kind of things going on definitely makes people bond in ways that is like difficult to explain and makes very unlikely bedfellows. We mentioned Jimmy watched this whole interaction from the balcony or he rather he watched the back end of their interaction from the balcony question i had immediately was is this going to eat at him the fact that she's connecting with michael but not him at this point and if so how does that play out does that make him lash out at michael or does it make him more inclined to take michael in to figure out the secret of why she's connecting with you and not me Oof. Jealousy seems more likely than like understanding compassion and pulling him closer. But would will jealousy, you know, make him keep like his enemy closer? Perhaps. We know that there's going to be a whole portion here where I feel like Jimmy is going to have to trust him on some level because he has to infiltrate a little bit. That's the only way this Olivia storyline works. So there is going to have to be some amount of trust and information passed on to him. And whether that extends to Jimmy exactly or if it's all going to be happening through Fia, I don't really know. I want to play a clip from last week that we highlighted as we move into talking about the Baxter family here. This is a clip from uh, the season two premiere. Why does this happen? It's a senseless act of violence. Was it? I know violence is a part of this family. Carlo killed someone, mom, her family. 
I know what people think about them. I, I've heard the stories. They can't all be lies. They revel in it. But we're not like them, right? So how do you do what they do? Now, that is the scene right after she can't lay the flowers at Adam's candlelight vigil. Jimmy does, crosses himself, makes eye contact with Charlie, and then the next time we see them, they're at the water side, and they have that conversation. A year later, right, that's not too long after Adam has been killed. That's uh, that's the guess anyway, with the, the vigil that seems like something that happens in the days, maybe weeks, but probably more like days after he's dead. So we're a year on from that. What possibly could have happened, do you think, to drive and change the dynamics so much so where it goes from Fia is you and me are different than mom and Carlo to she's talking to Carlo and seemingly somewhat friendly with him. She's at least entertaining Gina, even though that ends in disaster and a a slap and some blasphemous talk. But she's completely icing out her father. She's seeing him at the bar in the hotel and ignoring him. Actively, we know from his conversations with Gina and with Carlo that she's not talking to him at all. What possibly do you think happened? Do you have any guesses? Obviously, the show hasn't told us yet. I'm gonna go with a teenage pregnancy. You, You think you maybe had some problems with that? Yeah, lots of dads have a lot of problems with that and have a problem with the guy who, who helped create that situation. But the guy who created situations dead, though. When the possibility, though, of a first grandson... There's a fair shot that he he was a proponent for not continuing the pregnancy. Yeah, that's true. So she may very well have been, you know, and we're just completely spinning ideas here, but she may have been on the opposite side of that and said, no, I'm going to have this baby. And they were like, you're, I mean, think about all the normal conversations. Well, you Gina and the Catholicism and the priest definitely would have not advocated for getting rid of the baby. Yeah, well, I don't think Jimmy and Gina are getting along either. Right, and that maybe that is the connection. Maybe it's not so much bereaved parents and, you know, there's, there is what has been proven to be largely a myth about divorce among parents who have lost a child the statistics as it bears out actually most family most relationships survive but there's definitely strain in the marriage and so the obvious here is when we see gina and jimmy i mean she's the way she covers she's not even naked and she's covering herself in the bedroom that is the telltale sign of trust has been broken yes because you no longer feel comfortable to be nude in any way in front of your partner that that's it that's all you need and you're watching the question is why 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 the loss of rocco can't be it maybe it is but that seems too no, easy it seems too and it seems too far away like it was like that maybe but they were sitting side by side in the courtroom with you know his arm around her and stuff like that like right but maybe that's the adrenaline of the moment right maybe a year on and the adrenaline of the of kofi and carlo and the loss of rocco all of that how many digs could you take of her saying well you're the why don't you just buy her a motorcycle right how many times could you hear that shit before you'd be like, ah? So I, I like to think my my, my headcanon so far is that definitely is the source and the start of the strain. I think you're 100% right. I think this unwanted pregnancy and why Gina has access to Fia, why Carlo has access to Fia, but why Jimmy doesn't, I think you've hit the nail on the head. This is based on my Gilmore Girls. You know, dad didn't like Christopher so much when he got me pregnant. Like, there's that whole dad's 
have a real problem with this whole situation. We have to remember how how old Fia is. She's not. She's young. And, you know, this would have been one of those situations where for Jimmy, oh, my God, you'd be like, no one really knows what Jimmy knows about the uh, Desiato side of the whole mix here, right? So, like, the rest of his family could be like, uh, and you're right, they've they layered in the Catholicism so well about, you know, no way, they're definitely keeping the baby. But you could see where Jimmy would have, like, a very active argument for not continuing the pregnancy. That's really interesting, too, because, because remember, her confrontation, Fia's confrontation with Gina is tense, but it really escalates when she starts talking about how, you know, get off the cross, Jesus needs it and stuff. And that's what the slap is. That blasphemous talk, even when she's, even when Fia's talking to Michael, she brings up her mother and the Catholicism and all that stuff that she's not sure she believes at all, which was a recurring theme in, in the first season. She really pushing against, I mean, they bring in the priest there when they're, they find out there's a boy in her life, you know, and, and she has this whole moment of she's not even sure let alone angry at god she's not even sure she believes in god they've done a lot with the catholicism in the show it's yeah. a really interesting thing that we don't really talk about a lot but the religion in this in this show the entire abraham story from season one and when she's like yelling in jimmy's face and being like would you kill me dad would you kill me dad like all that think about that would you kill me dad would you kill your child think about that conversation and then what if then how much longer when she says i'm pregnant would you kill your child, dad? You know, like, that's the question. So it's like, I could see where they would have an ongoing argument there of what was going on. Plus, it is extremely rare for us to have gone two hours with a family when Gina and Jimmy don't mention their grandson. They're not like, let me hold the baby. Where's the baby? How's the baby today? They're the grandparents. Right. Even she even comes into the hotel room. Right. Even when she comes into the hotel room where the baby we know is just in the next room. Mm -mm. She doesn't go looking for him or go get him or ask about him or mm -mm. part of that is suspense for the audience. Right. Because we want the reveal of the Rocco Adam and all that stuff. But just think about how unusual that would be to never be asking her about him. Keep all of that in mind and then listen to this clip of Jimmy when Carlo comes to the bar to say that he had talked to Fia. Uh, listen to this clip. Talk to Fia today. I think she just needs some space. Space? Uh, the problem with younger people is that you don't worry about time. You can get space anywhere, much as you want, but time. You never get that back. And one of the reasons we have children is to reset the clock. I'm still here. Fia's not gone. You're a good brother, Carlo. Fleeting time, the parents' dilemma. Young people never appreciate how fast time moves until you become a parent and I feel like time begins to move exponentially fast. But the idea of we have kids to help reset the clock works on a whole other level when you think about the fact that now Fia, a child herself, has now had a child. A Fia, a child herself in Jimmy's eyes, has now had a child. This idea of time and space and, and fleeting time and it's running ever faster, resetting the clock, and now Jimmy feels like he's lost a bit of that, right? He's lost his daughter because now she is a parent there's a whole aspect of that too where she can't be his little girl anymore because she is also now a mother 
Mm. Which is total fact. I feel like I have had a completely different relationship with my siblings and my parents the second I gave birth. And that that is not an exaggeration. I really didn't have like a very close relationship with my sister. And we had a completely different relationship after I had kids. I mean, it seemed like the week I gave birth, <laughs> we became having a different relationship. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot that that comes with changing over to that next level of going from kid to parent. You're right. It has to be underscored that it changes the dynamic of the family. And Jimmy doesn't like that one bit. He no. he really well, he's lost power. He was, he's lost power over her. Well, and think about way, way, way back when I'm talking the season one, episode one, them eating breakfast in the kitchen. That was just a bunch of kids eating cereal, getting ready for school. And now look where we are one year later, you know, a baby. She doesn't even live with them. Like the whole thing, like, I mean, he did lose all his little kids in one one fell swoop there. And record scratch, Carlo, you're a good brother. What? <laughs> yeah, that was not it. That's not exactly how I would have ever described Carlo. But everything we saw in this episode, though, seems he to support was. that. He seems to have mellowed the fuck out in the last year. Holy shit. I mean, he has like a normal <laughs> conversation with her. He doesn't threaten to kill anyone. When they, he doesn't threaten to kill when, anyone. When they ask him in the kitchen, you know, go to please talk to your sister. He doesn't like, ah. He's like, yeah, I'll go. No, no problem. He's very, he's, it's like. He's, he's docile it's compared like he got to how body season snatched. one. Right. Yeah. As Compared to how he was running through uh, New Orleans with a gun out trying to kill Eugene. Maybe it helps to not do so many drugs. I mean, he was doing like an entire drug ring at the time. So I mean, <laughs> I, I, we could pull the clip from season one where where uh, Fia is sitting with Adam in that coffee shop and says the wrong brother died. And now her her strongest family relationship is with that same brother that she yeah. was wishing had died just a year ago. Wow. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> I, we need some back. We need some flashbacks into the last year and the the evolution of the Baxter family because they have gone through some shit. No more so than Gina, who we have to get into her whole story because she has a whole evolution in just this one episode. I'm the same way about mom. I take the long way home from work just to avoid her old neighborhood. If you have something to say, Gina, we would love for you to contribute. I just don't see the value in collective whining. You don't have to be here. But how would I fill my Thursday nights if I'm not listening to a grown woman talk on and on about losing her mommy? We've all lost people that we're close to. My son died, same as you. Maybe you're just not ready to admit that our pain is exactly the same. Your son was a heroin addict who was hell-bent on destroying his life. My Raka was an angel, and he was taken from me. May I ask why you attend these meetings? My daughter suggested I have anger issues. <sighs> yeah, maybe you do. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> Gina. There's so oh, much. Oh, fuck you. So casual. <laughs> There's a couple things here. There, there's a couple things here. One is when she says, "How would I fill my time if I my Thursday nights if I didn't come here to listen to a grown woman whine about losing her?" And then with the way she says, "Mommy," yeah, make I, made me laugh every single time I've listened to that clip. Like literally, like snort out loud laugh. Like to my mommy, it was very, very, very funny pronunciation. What is she doing here? She's all spread leg, a super alpha move. The way she's sitting on the chair. 
is she really so desperate to get back to Fia talking to her that she's like subjecting herself to this? This feels like very like Gina has lost her way here that that she's even attending this i imagine if you made a list of a hundred things that gina baxter would be doing this would be nowhere near those hundred things yeah it probably would not be because because it kind of implies that she could learn something from someone else and that doesn't seem to be gina's mo at all right right and i mean so why are you here my daughter thinks i have anger issues i mean that's the entirety of the reason Guys, I mean, that's where she's at trying to get Fia to talk to her again, that she's putting herself through this. You know she detests every single person here. To say nothing of the fact that she thinks she is far, far better than every single person here. She, I mean, there's loathing. There's loathing in every in every ounce of her words and in her body language. I think that this is one of those groups that, you know, has the potential to help Gina see something. And maybe if she continues, it will. But I don't know that Gina's going to let anything in that head of hers or that heart of hers. So uh, it seems like it seems to me just like checking off a box. Like, I did it. I went. So now no one can question me because I did it. I went. I think so. Yeah, I, I, I. I think the lack of respect for the process or the grief counseling process, the the sharing among strangers as a way of healing is so distasteful to Gina and how she operates. This is purely the check the box because Fia said it to her and she's 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 trying to abide by the letter of the of the thing without, you know, embracing the intent or the right. spirits of not, the thing. She's not doing the work, people. Let's be real. She's not doing the work. You said it better. Yeah. She's she, this is she's just going through the motions. She's not invested yeah. here because this is just not how she expresses herself. I mean, she like Carlo at his base, assuming that Carlo that we've known up until this episode is the real Carlo and the Gina we've known up until this episode is the real Gina. They deal with all of their emotions with violence first. Grief counseling, opening up your heart and talking about your last moments and remembering and 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 doing that kind of work that's antithetical to to who Gina is. So, and I'm going to add to that, like the concept of questioning your part in something is not the Baxter way, <laughs> you know, no. like because you have to like examine, you know, you got to go inside yourself a little bit to to do this work. And and that's just not something that she's going to do anyway. Right. I mean, even when she says, but your your son was a heroin addict as if as if to blame it's a hierarchy. No, I mean, I can tell you being in the special needs community, there is a whole situation in support groups of hierarchy. Immediately, it's like I'm not as bad off as you or your child is worse off than my child like there's there's this whole hierarchy that happens immediately I, from my experiences the percentage of people who come in especially their first meetings of any type of support group absolutely no one is like soft and easygoing everybody has anger first there's so many times when i've been in some sort of support group where someone will be like the first thing they want to do is like start screaming about like a specific meeting they had or something like that and and, and the whole group is sitting there thinking like we can't solve this in any way this isn't what this is about but it's like you have to go through that process and so i respected that they were showing a very realistic version of your first couple times at a support group meeting it is what it's like everyone's always mad first right and these women are already so over gina because she could have just sat there quietly <laughs> with her with her widespread legs i, I really <laughs> why it, are you so on that that's because, so funny because it's just so alpha it's such a subconscious 
body language motion of of marking territory that most people, men or women, don't really sit that way. Not, I mean, it's exact. Go look at it again. It's pure dominance. She has put her legs into the into the space of the two women sitting next to her. Yeah, she's the epitome of take up room, right? Like take up your own space. She's, you know, you hear those things like uh, if you if you ever confront a bear, you know, make yourself large, right? Like she's alpha dominating this room in body language beyond the words. I mean, the way she sighs so mockingly of it and the, the open scorn distaste with which she approaches the process. Everything here is just all about her alpha dominance. But at the same time, the fact that she is here is a sort of submissive thing mm-hmm. because she's but here that's Gina, not of her right? free will. Like we talked about Gina's little pie chart, right? And she's got a whole portion of her that is very secretive. She's got this whole other part that's like absolutely calling the shots. But she has a slice of the pie that is submissive that will like go along to get along. And, you know, she's she's doing that. This is her gazpacho moment, but with Fia instead of with Jimmy. Basically, yeah. But but also, I feel like I think that when you go through something like a death of a child, I, I have to think that your pain is so extreme that you would feel like no one else could possibly understand the level of pain and what this feels like. So then when you're sitting in a support group with other people who say, well, I also lost someone, you automatically don't believe them. You don't you you don't believe that they could be feeling as bad as you do so there's like an an, like an immediate almost like distrust because you're like i you know you're not you're not me i'm not you like i'm not i'm not weak i'm not whatever i seem to think and what you look like she's gonna push back on that i hope that she kind of chills and settles in and actually gets something out of it it would be an interesting message i guess for the show to send in terms of healing and and trying to find a place to to be able to live like the like the psychiatrist was saying in the jail, try to carve out some space for you to be able to exist within this horrible situation. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen though with the counseling because <laughs> well, because I think this episode and I, it was the comment I made before we played the clip was her. She has a whole arc in this episode. You know, th- this this episode was very much like establishing for us where are we a year out gina starts this episode in this showing a little bit of her belly but yet still being the alpha dominant self but there there is a spark missing from her in in her from her cruella deville you know ursula the sea witch kind of vibe that she's cultivated mob widow vibe that she's cultivated over a season there's a little bit missing from that when you see her in the scene even with the snide comments even with the ah fuck you comments there there's a little spark missing from her uh, just uh, just highlighting it she has the conversation with fia right she goes there feels like a little bit of an olive branch i mean she she made me laugh she has that line of yes it was very big of you to move out of your parents house to move into your parents hotel you know like <laughs> like you know just real no, parent solid, shade solid <laughs> right but fia, just, fia stands to her she goes she puts nose to nose to her with words gina responds the only way gina can she slaps her right when she makes her jesus cross comment and then she takes from there, she goes out to the balcony where the Baxter patriarch and matriarch do all of their good thinking as they oversee their empire. And she sees Big Mo coming out of the Grand Rain. It's those two scenes are back to back. She goes to see Fia and she has a confrontation. Then she's on the balcony and she sees Big Mo coming out after she's closed the deal to buy the club. Now, Gina doesn't know at this point, she can't know at this point what has happened, but she knows Big Mo doesn't, quote unquote, belong here in the French Quarter, 
she doesn't belong in this neighborhood. So her presence here, looking smiley, looking happy, maybe she sees her with Charlie the mayor. She knows that represents an issue for her. And it's those two things back to back that lead her back to grief counseling for the second grief counseling clip. And this is this is the point of this episode. I think the reason we see her start where she starts at the beginning is so that we can have this, you know, how Gina got her evil groove back moment here in the second counseling session. Let's take a listen. I owe you all an apology. I've been coming here for the wrong reasons. You told me there were five stages of grief. Uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. What I didn't realize is that my grieving is out of order. And that confused me. That is very astute, Gina. You're absolutely right. We all take a different path to acceptance. Well, that's what I've learned. I'm not seeking acceptance. That's not where I want to end up. You were trying to help me navigate past anger, but anger is where I want to live. Anger is where I flourish. Anger is where I want to live. Anger is where I flourish. Two sentences, nothing good is going to come from those two sentences. Those are two dangerous sentences coming out of Gina Baxter's mouth. I can't even contemplate what hell and wrath will be wrought with her wanting to flourish in her anger. And truly, maybe the two most terrifying sentences in the entire episode. It feels so similar to what Michael was saying, though, this idea of, you know, like I, I'm like healing is like a joke. Like there's there's a level of pain and, and tragedy that you can experience that the idea of healing, of getting past it, of any amount of therapy. I, and, and again, I can I can appreciate this because I, I have three kids with special needs. And, and for me, after having my twins, there was a great deal of just confusion, like my path had gone in a different direction than I was expecting, that type of thing. And and you start carrying around like this chronic stress, this chronic just being upset on some level that things just are not going the way you thought they were going to. And I went to several therapists and the thing was the concept that you could ever get past it or get over it or somehow heal past it when you are living it day to day feels like, you know, how, how do you get past this? I can very much appreciate that really only time is going to help these people. But for both Michael and Gina, I just hear them both saying the same words, different ways, but the same sentiment of like, like, how dare you ever expect me to really get past this? I don't even want to get past this. I don't want to get past it. I want it to fuel me. I want it to be the kindling that makes the fire in my belly burn so I can I can do what I need to do. And for Gina is is wreak violence and havoc and power and and extend all of those things to make her family more powerful, more strong, more dominant. The the anger will fuel that whereas reaching acceptance or or you know understanding or you know reaching out her heart and holding hands with any of this women these women in this grief counseling group will never satisfy what Gina needs for fuel to go forward but using her hurt and the loss and her grief as a fuel for anger that's that's an eternal flame that's an eternal flame that work hand in hand grief grief and anger 
I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's peanut butter and jelly, baby. That's that's <laughs> that's uh, peanut butter and chocolate. I like peanut butter. That's peanut butter and any and marshmallows. You like peanut butter mostly. <laughs> yeah, I like peanut butter. Yeah, yeah peanut I mean, those fluff, are two, right? two, two great things, two great tastes that taste great together. F- anger and grief. And for someone like Gina, that's catnip. She can't turn that down. This is a mom who is going to um, be a force to be reckoned with. That's that's the main thing. And she already was. That's the thing. I mean, she already was. Well, that's the getting her groove was, back, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it seems a little bit like her and Jimmy both seem a little detoothed, a little defanged in this episode until this moment. I think Jimmy still is there. Maybe seeing Fia hugging on Michael will be his get his groove back inspiration moment. But Gina, a little defanged, is sending a this grief counseling because her daughter, who's not even really talking to her, told her to come. Mm, that's not Gina. That's not who Gina Baxter really is. Gina needs an enemy. Gina needs to turn her sights on someone. You know, she sees Big Mo, an enemy, a natural enemy, a natural, uh, a natural predator of hers or enemy of hers is across the street. She finds out, they all find out Desiato, Michael Desiato's out of prison in this episode, which... We talked about last week. I was a little surprised. I don't know about you to find out that they weren't keeping more active tabs on him, even after a year. That was the question mark, because we thought, surely, if you have, you know, had these interactions with this judge, surely you would be keeping track of him. Because just because he's in prison, that doesn't mean anything to the Baxters. I mean, they don't their lives bleed into prison life. You know, they have guys on the inside. They have things that are going on in there. So the fact that he's in prison for for a lot of us, like me and you, you could lose track of someone, but they have whole people in there. So I thought they would have been 100 percent knowing exactly where he was. Right. It wasn't that Frank came and told him that he was out of prison. At some point, that was always going to happen. The surprise for me was more that they didn't know ahead of time that he was being sprung from prison, that they would be caught off guard that way. Obviously, they're keeping tabs. The fact that Frank knows he's out of prison, they're keeping some level of attention on him. Right. I, I, I imagine in Frank gets spreadsheets or daily reports in his email of of enemies of the family, you know, in their movements. Right. This it's like this the guy, morning newsletter. Like the morning, like, <laughs> right. Your morning like newsletter, your rush letter of the morning. Like, what are the top things I need to be aware of? Well, this judge who knows a lot of our family secrets has been sprung from prison. But the fact that they didn't know ahead of time, all given all of the th- people that they know inside the prison system that they didn't know ahead of time, that surprised me that they would drop the ball. But again, Maybe this is part of the Defang thing in the aftermath of Carlo getting off of the Kofi murder rap in the aftermath of the loss of Rocco and the the adrenaline drop. Remember, the whole first season plays out over a very short amount of time where they're really just amped up. They're 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 supercharged, fueled by Rocco's death right into Carlo having to go into this murder trial. They never had a time to actually take a breath or stop as, as a crime family would. Now, a year on, it's a little deflated balloon, it feels like, at least for Jimmy and Gina. They seem very deflated balloon in this episode until the scene at the end. This is what I'm thinking. Gina needs to find her next enemy, whether that's going to be turning her sights on Michael to shut him up and make sure he stays silent or turning her sights on on Big Mo and Desire now moving into the French Quarter literally across the street. This this whole setup at the end feels very much like this is where Gina's going to turn her sights to. She needs, an, she needs someone 
someone to fight. The Baxters need someone to fight. They they just can't grow in peace. They need violence to go forward and to feel alive. There's something about Gina that needs to have other people suffer in order for her to feel good. She's one of those people. Like she can't just like heal her own self or whatever. Like she's, you know, been the nudge this whole time. Blow up a house, do whatever, go kill someone. You know, she's always the whispering in the air. She needs like that tangible something in order to feel it, feel anything for that matter. Speaking of a possible enemy for Gina to fight to feel alive, let's turn our attention to Big Mo and Desire as a whole, who had a lot of interesting progress in this episode. Let's play a clip and then uh, talk about Big Mo Monique. This place has been my life. Can't sell it to just anyone. I'm not asking you to sell it to just anyone. I'm asking you to sell it to her. My money just as green as anyone else's. Look. I don't mean to be insulting, but, uh... Maybe you do mean to be insulting. I tell you, my papa used to gig on that stage for 27 years. Yeah. And my daddy watched him. That's a boy from that door right there. Said a bartender at the time gave him a tall, cold drink filled with maraschino cherries. And the owner of the club at that time I mean, you purchased it from Knock that drink out of my daddy's hands. So while I understand this club is important to you, Richard, it's important to me too. A lot to unpack here. I, I want to get into to Big Mo and her personal motivations. Is that really why she's looking to buy the Grand Rain, which is the name of the club? Is it because of the pretty singer that she's in a relationship with that she wants to buy the club? Is it for Desire's business and, and the aspect of legitimacy? Uh, in, and, or, and, and, or laundering money. Laundering money. In, well, yeah, laundering money and the legitimacy of owning a club in the French Quarter versus a, a bar down in the Lower Ninth. There, there's a whole aspect of of upright citizen at least in the forward facing part of the world there what's her motivation here what's your gut instinct watching these grand rain scenes play out in this episode so i think it's a combination of the girlfriend like you said and then also the i think i think money laundering i think you have to have some legitimate businesses in order to be able to actually grow and and you know think of like we've we've referenced the sopranos or or the you know godfather or anything else where like you have to have some businesses you know you have to have some fronts that that are actually in where the people are so that you can have people come and go and be more or i should say less conspicuous and you know i'd like to think maybe she'd like to go a little bit more legitimate and get a little bit out of the drug world but i don't think that that's her goal at all i think it's it's the money laundering feels right. Although I got to say, I really appreciated that look she gave up to the Baxter Hotel. Like when she came outside, she kind of like glanced up. It was like, mm. <laughs> she, does, she doesn't mind that it's going to be like right in front of their faces. I, money laundering for sure, but there are less conspicuous businesses to launder money through. She would be better off sure, uh, like she a would laundromat be, or a, a three, she'd something be better small. off opening up three laundromats in a more poverty stricken area to launder money through. There's going to be a lot of eyes on a new owner of a club right in the smack dab of the French Quarter, right across from the Baxter House, which seems to be a big tourist spot always hopping very popular touristy spot in the middle of new orleans there gonna be a lot of eyeballs on there so money laundering is going to be more difficult there than if she had gone somewhere else so why then one very much a part of 
she wants to needle the Baxters. She wants them to see her across the street every day. I think she very much wants them to know that they're not expanding into her territory. She's expanding into their territory. It's alpha. It's dominance. It's power plays. Okay, so you say that, but but she was always the one trying to, like, stifle the sitch. Like, we're not going to have a war. We're not against each other. We're not whatever. Like, well, a she war was always is different like than that, growth, like, throughout... though. No, I agree. But but why do you think she wants to needle them or, like, get in their faces or anything? Like, but when the whole time, the only thing we've ever seen her do is try to take it down a notch all the time, take it down a notch. So it seems like an, uh, it would be a real change in her demeanor to want to suddenly get up in their faces. It's a year later and it's business, right? This is this is a way this is a way for her to show that she's an alpha without guns, without murdering children uh, without doing out in front steps to power or challenges to power this is a way you do it right yeah why why can't i have a legitimate business in the french quarter you have you don't think the baxters aren't running money laundering through the baxter house i'm sure they are you know they're oh, not I running think the hotel is uh, like an awesome place to run it through of course i mean for god's sakes uh, carla was running his drug operation short-lived as it may be through the dining room of the baxter house right so i i think this is a way for her to show her alphabetus right because it's also a year later we've gone a whole year you know a gang is another thing where you have to innovate you have to grow or you die or you at least get a challenge to power right big mo runs a very large tentacly filled gang there's always going to be someone that's looking to challenge her power so she has to continue to grow the presence of desire in order to recruit new members to keep money flow happening to keep their rep intact to show that they are a force so this is a way for for them for her to show desire is a force to be reckoned with without violence without in instigating a war in a very upfront kind of way but also adds an air of legitimacy. I don't think we can discount that story she tells to in front of Charlie and the, and the club owner. The little bit of revenge, why the Grand Reign versus something else in the French Quarter? Well, because her grandfather and her father were disrespected in this place. So there's a little bit of there's a little bit of personal revenge wrapped up in the business sense of it all as well. Perfect motivations where there's personal wrapped up in the business. We can't uh, ignore the relationship portion. And like, if this is going to help her get some positive feedback from her girl, then that's fantastic, right? Like, this is all moving forward. What do you think about the fact that Charlie is so gung-ho to be on her side? Well, I mean, it's an interesting conversation that they have in the diner where she says she brings up the point of Black-owned businesses. And, you know, she, she's a, a an entrepreneur of sorts. And it seems that Charlie ran on a platform of increasing opportunities for for black owned businesses and what better place than a historic club in the french quarter to to usher that in plus he gets the the more eyes on her right the this is going to put her in a whole spotlight that she has avoided as a long time as only operating down the lower ninth i I don't think that really could be underestimated so by doing that charlie knows there's a bit of a trap there the more eyeballs on her the more she has to also control desire and their activities in a way. So when he brings up as a bargaining chip, I can't have seven ODs and two deaths in one night happening in your neighborhood. 
you know, and she she has to say to him, even though she was already taking care of it. We seen this. We saw the scene earlier, uh, telling them to pull the drugs off the street that are laced with the two heavy handed fentanyl. Um, even if she's already taking care of it, she has to kind of eat crow in front of the mayor and say, I'm going to handle these ODs. I'm going to make sure that that's taken care of as a bargaining chip. So it's good politics for him. It, it, the, the larger eyeballs on her by running this bigger, bigger club in a very well-traveled destination is going to make it harder for her to get away with nonsensical things that threaten the people's city. You know what I mean? That, that, that's how I took it anyway. It's it's a win-win for Charlie. He gets to have a little more control over her because it'll put her in a, a brighter spotlight and okay. also helps a Black-owned business. And also, I mean, when he says, maybe maybe you did want to be insulting, you know, during the clip <laughs> kind of thing, you know, right. uh, you know maybe right. you did want to be offensive. Like, Charlie doesn't like that guy. He doesn't want to deal with Dick. He'd much rather. I, there's, a, there's a little bit, you know, Monique has got some charisma. She does. And, and and Charlie likes a charismatic woman. Think about how he acts with, uh, well, all of the ladies in this show, from Senator like Grandma. Senator Grandma, for sure. For sure. I mean, Senator Grandma and Big Mo are not terribly unlike each other. There, there's a there's a sassy badassness that runs through both of them. And Charlie likes that. He, he picks up on that a lot. And so I think there's an aspect to that that he really can't turn down either. It's kind of win-win for him, I think. Once you put people in proximity of each other, there's only two things that can happen. They're either going to be completely like, you know, there's the saying of uh, you can't hate up close or it's like you just put two like like scorpions in a box, you know, like and shook it real good. Let's see what happens. One of the interesting questions for me is going to be because of the eyeballs that are going to be on her now as this entrepreneur, as this owner of a, of a big club in the French Quarter across the street from the Baxter House, is it going to force her to maybe transition out of the active role of running Desire or at least running the drug aspect of it? Is this something where we're going to see Little Mo taking over more of the decision making? He takes a big move in this in this episode by heading to, to Houston. So just so you guys know, so I'm in Houston. Um, we're definitely like the closest big city to New Orleans. We're about five hours away. I'm interested in them leaving New Orleans like this. This is fascinating for them to bring in like Houston and start kind of like making this bigger picture. But that's something that we said in our last episode that like, I'm excited to have Senator Grandma come so that we can like include a bigger picture of what's going on, not just these couple of streets, what's happening. But and she makes reference to Baton Rouge, right? She says legislature is in, but I need to get out of Baton Rouge for a couple of days. So you're lucky I'm home. Just to connect Big Mo to Little Mo so we can move on to Little Mo is I think Big Mo taking on the Grand Reign maybe gives the opportunity and it would feel kind of natural for Little Mo to then rise in the ranks of Desire and, and you know, take over a big division, right? It would be like being promoted from being like the vice president of Disney Parks to like being put in charge of Disney Parks, right? Like mm-hmm. th- that's a big promotion. And if he gets, if Disney Parks are the equivalent to the drug operation in New Orleans, that's a big promotion for Little Mo. So maybe her taking over the gar- Grand Reign allows him to have more power himself and making more decision making in the drug operation of desire he doesn't seem like he's very interested in running a nightclub but i think he's very much interested in making a name for himself as a drug kingpin uh before we move on to little mo we gotta talk about janelle 
the girlfriend that we see Big Mo is, she seems very ensorcelled by her. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Janelle's played by... This is by, a very fresh side that we're seeing of Big Mo. Of side we have never seen in uh, the 11 previous hours of Your Honor. We've never seen this aspect <laughs> of Big Mo. But watching her watch Janelle sing, and Janelle's played by guest star uh, Ciara Renee, who is a Broadway singer. She is, a, she is a very accomplished singer. She regularly plays in jazz clubs in New York. But I actually know her best from a long stint. She had a recurring role in the Hourverse shows on the CW. She played Hawkgirl, Kendra Saunders, for across the several different Arrowverse shows for years. So I was a fan of her that way. But looking up her career, she, she does a lot of jazz club stuff. She's been on a lot of Broadway shows. So she can sing. That's like her really singing. She's doing a very sultry remin- uh, rendition of Summertime and The Living is Easy. Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald have very famous versions of it. There's like 25,000 recorded uh, versions of Summertime. It was actually written by George Gershwin for the show Porgy and Bess in like the mid-1930s. So very popular American standard. And she's given a very kind of sultry singing to Big Mo as mm-hmm. much as singing to anyone else in the club. I love this whole aspect. This is a this is a whole other side of Big Mo we got in this episode from the club to the romance aspect. I'm interested because it, it lets us see this whole other side of her and lets us really, you know, develop her character so much more and get it, get an understanding. Like when we were talking about in the last episode about, you know, was there someone above her? We're starting to find that out. Like we're starting to find out about her dad or, you know, other people that you're like, okay, okay, let's start building the actual history of this group. That always helps me really feel like I'm more like immersed in the show because I really get where these people are coming from. Yeah, it, it, it makes you invest in them and it makes it harder for them to just be villains or just be the good person right the more fleshed out they are the more gray to them and the the more gray a person has i think the more interesting they have because you have to wrestle with do i like this person do i not like this person like am i a bad person if i do like this person some of the best characters in this show are bad guys my whole thing is I ju- I want to understand their thinking and, mm. and I don't necessarily have to judge whether their thinking is like good or diabolical or whatever it is, but I want to see how they got there and I, I want it to feel earned in that way. So starting to understand her family history and starting to understand that she is trying to, you know, basically make a stand in some way. Like I have enough money to live in the same place you all do. My queen and is to as work good as yours. And, exactly. And to work here, live here, you know, enjoy all the perks that you guys do. I feel like, okay, all right, we're starting to really understand where we're going with this group. And it's great proximity for them to be across the way like that, because think of the fireworks between the two of these these places. Especially with Michael running back and forth with his meat deliveries. Yes. I mean, he's just walking down the French Quarter. He's just going to see Big Mo. He's going to see Jimmy. Yeah. He's, he's yeah. hitting all of it right right in a centrally located area for him. So Crazy, right? I, I think just because you mentioned Charlie, I think it's interesting we get a little glimpse of what his mayorship is like. Not only that he throws his support by her and agrees to help her in exchange for her to take care of the drug overdoses, but the fa- the way he does it, right? The, the fact that he says, if you don't see sell to her if i don't get to see my business you know deal closed today i love how he said that (laughs) that the historical commission may have to take a look at the work you've done here the reconstruction you've done here which is a big deal if you have a historical landmark you can't be futzing with many aspects of that and that may shut his business down a year two years like 
this is Charlie playing hardball. Like this is what the Charlie Figaro mayorship looks like. We we get these kinds of arm twisting deals in the back room. I think that's just New Orleans in general. Well, I like it. <laughs> I like it. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna say I don't like it. I, I do like some arm twisting. <laughs> yeah, so. backroom uh, deals. Uh, let's head down uh, to, to Houston Way with Little Mo. Uh, in addition to expanding the locations, this episode also expands the family tree, right? Little Mo, Big Mo, the other lieutenants, Eugene. We've kept, for the amount of people in Desire, we haven't met a lot of family. In this episode, we get to meet Cousin Trey. He's the man at the mechanic shop at, at the garage that he uses to make the intro to the Little League coach. And we also get to meet Aunt Sheila, who's the one taking care of Eugene, now going by Justin. Interesting, after, again, 11 hours of Your Honor, all of a sudden, now we're getting, like, Little Mo's family. Like, mm-hmm. we're learning about his extended family in this episode. What's your take on the drug deal aspect of it? I want to talk about that. The 20 kilos, how intense that guy is while while having Little League practice. <laughs> he's also trying to, I mean, 20 kilos, I mean, he came there looking for two. He's yeah. He's making him take 10 times the amount. That's a big business deal for him to be committing to. I was impressed that he was that committed to the conversation, though, in terms of of saying like 20, the end. Like there was nothing there was nothing they could say or do that was going to change that guy's mind at all. And, he, and intense is a great word. And also, you know, intimidating. I mean, I feel like that they were like, Argh. I mean, they're supposed to be the negotiators. And right. here they are like, I have absolutely nothing to say back. You know, they really had nothing. I, I've run many batting practices in my life. The fact that he didn't break stride in in, brat, in batting practice. And he was even talking to the kid. He was like correcting and giving information and stuff back and forth. And it was like, oh, my God. And he's still making the drug deal. Right. That was the most impressive part was that he didn't that he didn't stop and say, well, right, let's talk this out. You know, he was like, I've got five star shit. I deal in weight. That's it. You you go find better. You can find you know go find worse stuff somewhere else. But right now, this kid and his batting stance is far more important than whatever your ass is looking for. Twenty kilos. That's what it is. The stuff is worth it. Take it or leave it. Like very intense because it was so dismissive, which is a great negotiating tactic for you guys out there that are looking to try and get your way in a business negotiation. Do what Little League Dad is doing here. Whose name I think it might be Zeke. Very intense. Very intense conversation. The question is. Does Little Mo do it? Cousin Trey has got a big reason for wanting him to take the deal because it's he gets his finder's fee and he only has to do one drug deal, right? Because 20 kilos of drugs are going to hold Desire over for quite a long time. He doesn't want to be a middleman who, you know, every time you go to do a deal risks police intervention. But for Little Mo, it's a question of, 10 times the amount of drugs he needs for his territory. And also it's a cash flow problem. He doesn't actually have the money to do it. And who knows how long they had to just take three kilos of drugs off the street that they're not selling. This is going to cut into probably financial reserves if he's going to take this deal. That's a whole economy uh, economy question. How much does he wrap up in 20 kilos of drugs of actual cash? That's a liquidity crisis. That's that's real <laughs> money stuff. I mean, it's drugs, but it's real economy stuff is that's going to type a lot of desired cash, I would guess. I wonder what he was okayed to do in terms of, you I know, obviously. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what they came for. But, you know, there's always that little like, well, they took okay, three off the little street. wiggle room, you know, and so I wonder, right. like, did, did he have any wiggle room or was it like this is it i i was unclear if he had any actual negotiating power or if he was really just there as the you know the the messenger slash gopher you know like he was just going to courier it back and forth but 
he didn't seem like he had any negotiating power, really. Well, I think he was trying to be the alpha in the conversation. He was like, let's start with two. He's like, right. no, no, he's, he's like, no, no. He's like, let's start with two. <laughs> yeah, he, he thought his role was, his position was wrong. He, 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 he did not understand the dynamic, the power dynamic in that relationship. No. I mean, the fact that they pulled three off because of the bad drugs makes me think he probably could have gone to three, right? Because that's actually what they're trying to replace. Yeah, I think the let's start with two and saying it twice was like, maybe you didn't hear me. I said, let's start with two. And he's like, no, man. Like <laughs> Everybody heard you. <laughs> yeah, everyone heard you. He said, but I deal in wait i was like oh shit this is not going to go his way the interesting thing is if he has to pull the cash and he decides to try and do this deal one does he run and buy big mo or does he just take the cash and if he just takes the cash is he then going to be cutting into cash that big mo is looking to use to buy garden rain that's what i'm wondering is that that's a huge chunk of cash two people in desire big mo and little mo are both talking about spending a huge chunk of cash at once so it's like surely that's gonna have to you know wires are gonna have to cross there while he's in town I thought it was very nice that Little Mo went to go check up on Eugene. Uh, so this is the address that I guess that he where he went. I guess he was sent uh, to his aunt. I thought it was nice that he didn't really need to check up on him, right? He could have just called his aunt to ask how Eugene was doing. There's a real connection here. Little Mo feels a responsibility for Eugene, and I like that they continued that. I'm always surprised. I have to only assume like that little Mo, because he was the one that actually went and organized things with Kofi. I have to think that there's uh, there's a lot of guilt there of, you know, like I he was the one that went and picked Kofi to be the the one who stole the car. And that led to, you know, basically Eugene having absolutely no one. So that's my motivation for little Mo, because other than that, there's really no reason he should be such a nice, compassionate person. There really isn't like it doesn't really fit. The profile of like what the life that he would have to be leading and how cutthroat he would have to be with other people and stuff like that in order to do his job. It's it doesn't make sense that he's such a soft heart, really. Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. But there is something undeniably cute about Eugene. Yeah. There's something undeniable about his kind of baby faced innocence. And Little Mo is not a stone. I, I, I don't think he is an absolute stone insofar as being dismissive of losing your mother and your three younger siblings all in one night for something that you are maybe the proximate cause of, right? If you rewind. Yeah, it's Kofi. But it's Kofi. Little Mo picked Kofi. But remember, it was Rudy called Little Mo. Little Mo picked Kofi. Big Mo wasn't involved in any of that. So responsibility falls squarely on Little Mo's shoulders, which, which Big Mo reminds Little Mo of and Eugene of when they're in the kitchen right after the funeral. So Big Mo has very, very clearly said it was Little Mo's call without without discussing with her to do what led to Kofi and then led to his whole family being killed. So I, I think you're right. There's definitely responsibility and guilt there. But there's also something very kind. You just want to pinch Eugene's cheeks, though, too. <laughs> and Eugene has managed, you know, besides that last moment, of course, of shooting Adam, he was like a good, sweet soul. And so there was something about that that I think is is like, you know, attracts you to, the, to him and be like, wow, like he really is a good guy. As much as you're saying like, oh, I totally get little Mo. He doesn't match like the norm of how you would write a typical guy in his position. It doesn't match that he's so friendly with Eugene, that he's so kind to him. Don't 
doesn't a drug dealer with a heart of gold, with a secret heart of gold, doesn't that make him more complicated to try and figure out, though? Maybe it's yeah, not realistic. But also, but, but also but maybe that it's more part, interesting, that though. part. No, what you just said, that part. Is it interesting? Sure. Is it realistic? I don't know. I mean, you really think the stuff that this guy has had to see and do that you would be so soft still? But maybe when you come across a guy who's so uncorrupted, so forced into a situation that he would never have been in, or at least not at the age in which he got into it, so uncorrupted, that maybe that's what makes it believable. Because from Little Mo's standpoint, it's such an aberration. He never deals with people like Eugene, that you can't help but look at him and go, well, this is a special case. I don't know that that a guy in his position has special cases, you know, as part of his norm. I'm fine with it. I am going to go with more of arrested development on his part in that like when he had Eugene over that he treated that more like a sleepover party like there was cartoons on the TV and they were like eating cereal not grown man stuff right he wasn't sitting there drinking a beer and having a burger or something right like he was way more childlike and so I'm going to read into him as he's actually a little bit less developed like maturity wise Um, and I think that's maybe where I'm going to fall in terms of like why he's okay with having Eugene, like calling him little man. That's a very big brother kind of thing to well, say. Yeah, remember though, part of that was that he got to buy him new sheets, right? In bed. Yeah. Remember how he and he got to, he got to be kind of like the big baller, right? He got to give him the wads of cash every time he needed it. He said, go buy, you know, go buy your mama something when Kofi had first died before his mother got blown up. Once Kofi was gone, he got to step into the big brother slash father kind of role and feel that kind of adulation, right? Like Chief and the other people in the desire crew aren't like oh little mo you know you're 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 wowing us with your wads of cash and buying us sheets for our new bed kind of thing like he got to do stuff for eugene that he's not getting to do otherwise which was giving him adulation right eugene was immediately looking up to little mo think about the conversations with like lee where he was defending little mo and desire like they're taking care of me they're making sure i've got money every week like they're they're you know in the in the wake of my entire family being killed they're taking me in they're my family now that was little mo doing that that was little mo cultivating that loyalty but again you've watched plenty of movies and plenty of everything else and tell me that that character exists not normally (laughs) like who is the soft and fuzzy in the godfather who is that warm and fuzzy guy in the sopranos Uh, not that many you're not naming them off about who's having a sleepover party with cereal and buying baby sheets no, but there are parallels, though. If you go watch Boys in the Hood, there are aspects of Boys in the Hood that actually show this, like, gangbanger, like, you're a sweet kid who's always kind of kept out of it. There are there are some, like, South Central L.A. gang stories. Like, uh, CW had a show, like, All American, where there was an aspect of, like, you were supposed to stay out of this life, and now you're kind of being dragged into this life, so we're going to treat you a little bit different than everyone else who's always been in this life. And there there is a, a, a slightly different different treatment of the thing i'm curious to see where they go with it i'm curious to see what they do with little mo if he does have to take over more of the day-to-day desire drug operation because big mo's gonna be doing this club ownership thing he's gonna have to change right he's gonna have to harden his heart more 
all the way around. He's going to have to be a tougher gangbanger. He's going to have to be Big Mo, more more business, but more cutthroat. The way we've always seen Big Mo, like she was willing to kill Eugene to keep from going to war. I don't know that little Mo, clearly little Mo wasn't willing to do the same thing. If he's going to run, run this big drug operation and be the guy, he's going to have to get to that point where he can make those decisions, right? You have to cut, you have to harden your heart a little bit, I think, yes. to become that guy. So I think a thousand percent. And maybe that's why they're showing us this aspect of him, because at some point he's going to have to not be that. We're going to see a sad transformation. Yeah. Let's talk about Eugene. He's working at the Bodie Leaf Coffee Company. You get a couple of glimpses of their signage. Now, here's the thing. If they really are in Houston, Bodie Leaf Coffee Company has several franchises in a real coffee place, but it only exists in Southern California. So in this world, it seems like they have franchised into Texas. I'm not sure why they picked this place over somewhere that actually is in Houston or somewhere else. But uh, so let's talk about Eugene aka justin did we know that he was such a good drawer those pictures were extremely detailed and troubling i don't remember us seeing him doing any drawing i i mean i guess suppose we could have looked around the room a little bit more carefully in season one to see like did he have pictures up on the wall or or anything like that in his area that he was slipping in that was new to me but it did lead to this conversation. He gets Paul called into the principal's office and, you know, the teacher or the principal rightly so is is wondering, are you a danger to the other students here? Are you a danger to yourself? Which. What a loaded question. <laughs> what a loaded question, especially for someone, Eugene, given. Remember, there's two pictures that are of note there. There's the picture of the house blowing up. That was Eugene being a victim. But there's also a picture of, of the, the Eugene drawing with the gun where he's being the predator, where he's being the aggressor. There's a lot of conflict inside of Eugene, right? There's these, there's the good and the bad going on inside of him or prey and the predator going on inside him as expressed in those drawings. So he's rightly wrestling with this question of, am I a good person? Am I a violent person? Let's listen to the clip that he has when he's at home with uh, Aunt Sheila and uh, maybe we will shine some light on it a little bit more. Everything all right? The guardian signature to prove we spoke about this. Just about your drawings? I'm not your legal guardian. What is it? My principal asked me if I was a violent person. Do you think you're a violent person? Whatever good is in a person, the seed of that goodness send them for life and the bad can always be uprooted whatever's in your past that does not define you justin it's not my name if you can be justin i can be justin's mom that's so sweet if you can be justin i can be justin's mom this is this is the episode theme. Am am I a violent person? Am I a good person? And I love what she says here. This is we talked about it a little bit before in Michael in the context of Michael. This idea that if there's a good seed in you, it's always in you no matter what you do. And any bad can be removed, but the good can't. The good is is a the good is who you are. The bad can be removed. That's a wonderful way of thinking about it because that gives all of us a chance for redemption and for hope. Well, do you feel like it's true? 
do you feel like do you feel like that the good stays for sure it can't be wiped away but the bad can be wiped away i think i do i think i do because i i think there are people that are bad people i think there are people that are evil people and that's just who they are I think they have, I think they lack the absence of good inside of them. But for most people, I think there is good within them. They may choose to do bad things. They may be forced to do bad things, but there is good in them. And I think that can always be redeemed through circumstance. I think there is repentance. I think there is atonement. I think you can achieve those things. Does it matter? I'm I'm not, I'm not qualified to get into heaven or hell or where good people go when they die. I, I don't know. I, I'm a smart person, but I'm not that smart or to even take a guess. I, I feel foolish, but I think atonement is possible for our, while we're here on earth, I think repentance and penance is possible. I think if you put the work in, I think you can fix your sins and your mistakes. So yeah, I think I do agree with it. I find it fascinating. The idea that like good stays, but bad can be wiped away. That's, that's interesting because I don't really think of those two traits as like one sticks to you and the other one can be easily wiped off or even worked off or whatever. I kind of feel like people kind of are who they are. And I think that for Eugene slash Justin, he is a good kid. He always was a good kid. He did one thing that was like impulsive and everything, but I don't think that that made him a bad person. You know, I know that sounds crazy because I know he shot someone, but I don't, I don't know. I feel like that wasn't ever really a part of his makeup. If you look at someone else like Gina, would we say, oh, so easy for her to just wash away the bad and the good would stick behind. It's like, I don't know. I feel like if you put her under that type of, let's say, washing machine, right, that could wash off one or the other. I feel like the good would be easier to wash off of her and leave her as like that her primal state is bad. It's interesting to think that like everybody's good. Right. Well, I think Gina, I think Gina and I think Jimmy at their core are bad people. I do. I think they may occasionally do a good thing or do a good thing out of self-motivation, which also has an an altruistic effect to it or or an outside third-party effect to the goodness. But I think at their core, they choose bad. Yeah, I, I, maybe, maybe I'm being extremely naive. Of the two of us, I'm shocked that you are leaning more into like, people are just like have a good, a good heart to start with. It's just like bad shit happens. And like, maybe, but I don't know of the two of us, I would have thought you would be more on the like, no, there's like bad people who just are bad people. And well, like, doesn't it have no... to be that way, though? Because as, 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 as babies, as small children, yes, there are bad seeds out there from from the earliest years. You just tell they they hurt the cat they hurt little animals, right? That's how you always see it, right? The Especially in horror movies, right? Any Stephen King movie with a kid, right? Is the, the bad seed, you know, from the very beginning. But the majority of of small of babies and small children are good. So if they become a bad person, that happens at some point down the road, they became a bad person because at some point they were good. If the majority of us are good, at some point of our life for many years and then become bad. Is that irredeemable? Can we not get back to a place? Maybe it takes years. Maybe in realistic years, it's it, there's not enough years left of our life for us to actually redeem ourselves to get back to good. But the possibility is there. If 
Carlos starts doing the work of repentance and atonement for his sins now when he's in his early 20s. And he devotes the next 70 years to living a good, repentant life. At 90, when he dies, can we say he's good? I think 70 years of true repentant atonement for his work that he did in his early 20s and his teens, maybe we could say he's good. The tr- the, the problem is Carlos is never going to be alive that long to get there, <laughs> and nor is he probably going to want to do the work. And that's where it comes in. So it's the potential versus the likely or the realistic time limit to do the work to become good. I mean, you know me and you know that I feel like I feel like if someone does something bad, they're just having a bad day. Like I want to think like everyone is good. I see you're already snickering at me because that's this is a huge difference between the two of us. Like that like I honestly think that people are really good people. I have to be encouraged to be skeptical, <laughs> right? And be and be like watching my back and stuff because I I don't I don't nec- I don't do that very very um intuitively and so i yeah i'm surprised that you're like oh you're being so you're being so kind i don't want to confuse things though i am i am naturally suspicious of people that doesn't doesn't negate the possibility one that i'm wrong which happens all the time or two that those people maybe are pieces of shit like i think they are but that doesn't mean that they can't become good people later on in their lives that they can't you can't remove the bad you know every 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 moment of every day we're only seeing a snapshot right we life is just a series of snapshots that are all run together i i naturally dislike people often <laughs> I, I find this is why it. I'm I, laughing because you're, uh, you're like people are so good, and I'm like, wait a minute, wait but, a minute, but, wait a but minute. You're, but but let's not mix it up though. It's the potential for good. It's the good seed that I think exists in people. I think most people are, are cloak themselves in bad and don't want to do the work to get rid of the bad. But that doesn't remove the possibility or the potential for them to do so. I just think most people don't do the work. I've done bad things in my life and I've tried very hard to to repent for them and to fix them and to remove the scars from the things that I've done. And maybe that's where this is coming from, because if if it's not true, then I'm fucked and and I don't want to be <laughs> fucked. So so maybe that's where this is coming from. But again, I think it's I think the possibility what what Anshila is saying here, this possibility to remove the bad exists and and the good can can be brought back out again. I think I have to believe that or else I'm going to have a lot of problems, you know, c- come come judgment day. So <laughs> I guess uh, I, let's leave it on the board. Okay, let's do that. Let's let's pin it on the board because I need a little bit more with these characters to really decide this because I, see, I, I hear all your noise about like there's the seed of good inside of everybody or whatever. And I'm, I feel like there's a seed of good and a seed of bad and they're equal in a lot of ways. And like it is, it does depend on which do you give more water, which do you give more attention and that side grows more. But I don't like this concept that, that the good always stays, but somehow the bad can be wiped away. I don't think it's like that. I think that goodness can be wiped away too, you know, and you can be, you could end up with just the bad. So I'm fucked. God noodling. <laughs> so screwed. You are? Uh, I think so, maybe. <laughs> You're funny. 
Mike, this has been an excellent conversation. I'm going to have to noodle on this. Good seed, bad seed, biz for sure. I just don't know the answer. Yeah, I'm going to have to go scrub my soul, I think, a little bit after we're done here. So I think it's time (laughs) to wrap it up for this week. Excellent. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after show podcast for Showtime series, Your Honor. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five-star review, it helps promote the show, helps other people find the show. We're still trying to maybe eke out that season three of Your Honor, and the more listeners we can point to, maybe that helps in the conversation. And we just want to hear from you. If you leave us something very nice, we're definitely going to read it on the air. So if that's your motivation, we'd love it. And uh, we'll see you at the Grand Rain. We'll buy you a drink and sing some summertime and a little bit as easy with you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.